As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Cinematic Universe, the comic book movie podcast that has been in development hell since the mid-90s. I'm James Hunt, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick. And Caroline Sita. Caroline, you're back. Yes, I am. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Uh, Caroline, remind our viewers who you are, please. So I am a TV and film critic for The AV Club, now The Verge, and elsewhere online, and a semi-regular guest of one of my favorite podcasts, Cinematic Universe. (laughs) <laughs> I thought you were going to name a different podcast as you're a semi-regular guest on one of your favourite podcasts which is not this one <laughs> <laughs> We'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Robert Rodriguez's Alita Battle Angel But before any of that I'm going to ask Caroline to ask us a question about comics that can only be answered by two people with nothing better to do with their time Okay, so as someone who has only read one comic i think one, <laughs> which one which one it was a she hulk comic i don't remember more than that it was many years ago i really enjoyed That's it probably a good choice yeah it was a great it was a great intro choice but i think one of the <laughs> things that can be intimidating from an outsider's point of view is like that that reading a comic is so different than reading a book because obviously you have pictures and words and how everything is spaced out so i'm curious if you guys feel like you have like a set mode in which you physically read comics, like whether you always look at words first and then pictures or whatever, or if you feel like you let each comic sort of shape how you're physically reading the page. Ooh, that's an interesting question. Mm. Um, I definitely always read the, th- the speech bubbles first, unless there's not a speech bubble. So I normally, <laughs> I read the speech bubble, then I look at the art, and then I move on to the next panel. And do you feel like you do a, like when you open a page... Are you sort of like, I just want to look at each box individually? Or are you like, I want to take in the full page 
and then zoom in. Yeah, I think I tend to focus on panels, partly because if you look at the whole page, you might spoil yourself for something right. cool that's about to happen. <laughs> See, I think I'm the opposite. I And this is why I re- I've never got on with, because I used to read comics from Comixology on my phone quite a lot before I then got a tablet to read them on. And I hated the guided view thing that Comixology does, where it broke things into panels and you would swipe through them one by one because I absolutely hated not having the whole page. And I think it can, I mean, it absolutely, Caroline, would absolutely vary de- depending on the comic because there's so many different ways to structure a page. There's so many different ways to to kind of convey movement and to convey the kind of passage of time and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there are comics that don't do it very well. And I think there are plenty of comics that are that kind of are just words and pictures that I think can be separated out in that way. But I think a really good comic, I think in a really good comic, every page is is well-structured and is something to experience in its own right and has a flow. Because um, again, you know, I, I think it's something that good writers and artists and letterers and everybody will will work on is actually is structuring a page around the art so you know your eye will kind of naturally move and flow and i think there are times when you can tell that you're reading something that has been well put together because you you do just kind of naturally get pulled into it and then there'll be other times definitely where i'll be reading a comic and i'm just thinking well i'm just reading a load of captions that happen to be illustrating that be illustrated by some <laughs> i was about to say there are some times when i just feel like i think oh, i can skip that word balloon <laughs> oh i definitely do that with some things yeah yeah <laughs> you know uh, some things are just so overwritten or, or so wordy and you're just like well the art's doing enough here i don't really need to to get every word in yeah but i, I do th- i do think it's definitely true that it's it is dependent on the comic um, and I think there are definitely some times where I would take in the visuals and then read the accompanying dialogue and captions. There are other times when in order to get what's going on, you absolutely have to be reading the words. Um, and as a, but, I, but really there are, and I, I can, as I can think of kind of specific kind of creators, like if I'm reading like a, a Morrison and Quietly comic or a Jim Steranko or that kind of thing, where you know, as you're reading it, that it is just this beautifully well put together whole and everything is working collaboratively uh and complementary to one another and that's when comics are at their best really is is when you don't even think about the separation between the two yeah i feel like it's one of those things that i'm sure gets so easy and natural once you've done it Mm. you know when it's like part of your life but it's it is a little bit of a barrier to entry i think in the same way that like if you watch a lot of foreign films or subtitled films you just sort of get used to it but it always mm. takes a little bit to get into it. I don't know. It's just interesting as a person who doesn't have a lot of experience with the comic book format. I think that that's always like, it's just interesting to wrap your head around something new. It's interesting that you've said that because I remember my brother asked me to buy him Watchmen for his birthday once. And he he was sort of like, I just, I don't know how to read this. Like it, I can't, hmm. can't figure it out. And kind of, it's weird because when, when I was a kid, like I read the Beano as as long which is like a, a british humor comic like as as long as i've been reading yeah anything. i was just gonna, was gonna say something so it's yeah. kind of second nature to me by this point yeah it's, it's it's actually hard to interrogate because it's all it's almost like saying um how do you read words mm-hmm. you know and it, and that and that's kind of so innate when you just read i genuinely 
couldn't describe what process happens when I'm looking at words. They just they just go into my brain, and it's been interesting. You know, uh, my daughter's four now, so she is is learning to read now, and watching that process and seeing that there are some instances where she'll read a word, and other instances where she absolutely has no idea what a word says. But but you know, the, you just reach a point and an age, you know, in your kind of reading life where that's it, it is just so second nature that you unless you've gone through it later in life and it's probably the same with like learning a foreign language mm-hmm. um you you your brain doesn't reach a point where you think about the process uh and it's definitely that's definitely true for me with comics like James you know I have been reading comics for as long as I've been reading so I've never had to think about reading a comic I would just on that subtitles point and that's something I would actually kind of flip and ask you because I and I'm generally not someone who's like habitually watched a lot of foreign language films with subtitles and I've got more used to watching things with subtitles recently because I do it a lot more on like Netflix and Amazon and stuff. I, I just find more and more when I'm watching things that I think there's a lot to do with modern sound mixes where... <laughs> also, we're getting old and deaf as we... And we're getting old and deaf. Been to too many gigs in our teens and 20s and now, yeah. Um, so I'm finding that I put the subtitles on a lot more and I'm finding it interesting. Again, it's that same question of, do you wait, do you keep your eyes above the line of the subtitles until they finish talking and then glance at the subtitle to see what you missed? Or do you read the subtitle straight away? Because I find sometimes it's really annoying if I'm watching something, particularly if it's comedy and timing is ruined by subtitles or things are given away because they're said by the subtitles before you've had the chance to experience the actor's performance. What do you, what do you find when you're, when you're watching something with subtitles? I think I always read it first, which is actually a reason that I don't like to have captions on unless I need them for mm. translation purposes because I do just like I can't help but read them even when I don't need to so if mm. it, even if it's like a YouTube video where they're just automatically on there sometimes I'll like try to physically block them with my hand because I do feel <laughs> like it's a distraction and it's you know for a foreign film it's obviously necessary and I think you just adjust and get used to it but it's never my preferred mode of viewing something because I do find it to be a distraction but I wish that mm. I could I think what you're describing is ideal like watch the picture and then mm. glance down at the words, but my brain does not operate <laughs> no, I'd, <like> yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I, I thought of it as a, that would be good to try and do, but yeah, I, I struggle as well. I do just end up reading it. <laughs> I would be interested. I mean, I you know, not to pressure you, but I do think you should read some more comics off the back of appearing on this podcast. And uh, <laughs> I, if you do, I would be interested to see if you can sort of interrogate that process of yeah. understanding, reading them, and kind of report back. Because I would be really interested to hear. I'll keep you updated. You have to let me know. I mean, not that you're shy on the recommendations over the years, but <laughs> I can always use more. You should definitely read the next issue of She-Hulk, because pretty okay. much every She-Hulk comic is great. Great. Uh, shall we do some news? Let's nice. do it. There is a lot of news. Is there? There are, there are four pieces of news. I'll start with the exciting one. Um, your favorite Doctor Who, I believe. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> well, Seb's favorite Doctor Who. Uh, Peter Capaldi has joined the Suicide Squad. The, I, I, the biggest news to me here is that this movie is called The Suicide Squad, which is also yeah. funny that you called him Doctor Who rather yeah. than The Doctor and The Suicide Squad. Um, which is the latter is not your fault. Uh, yeah, I like Peter Capaldi a lot. I don't like the title The Suicide Squad, but he also, did you guys see that he shaved his head for this role? Oh yes, I'm Smith gonna, I'm gonna go, talk about this. Movie that was. <laughs> His luscious locks are gone. 
I mean, Caroline, who do you think he's going to be playing in the Suicide Mm, Squad? Great question. Okay, I did see someone online say King Shark. Is that a character? (laughs) (laughs) It is a character. I'm not sure it's this character. Um, okay. Seb, uh, he's going to be playing having... a bald, per- probably Professor X. I would guess is the only <laughs> bald character in comics. Yeah, Seb, well, I believe you have a theory. Yeah, well, so first of all, just just to unpack that favorite Doctor thing, the the point about Peter Capaldi is so. That, okay, so the rule with Doctor Who is your favorite Doctor is always like uh, in your heart, without fail, your favorite Doctor is your first Doctor, and that is that is just mm. true of everybody. And um, so, my favorite Doctor is Sylvester McCoy. But I like Peter Capaldi so much that he is almost my favourite Doctor. He almost supersedes my first Doctor as my favourite. Because I loved him before he was the Doctor. Um, I loved the the idea of the possibility of him becoming the Doctor when it was just something we were stupidly speculating about and nobody believed what actually happened. I... Uh, was watching the live announcement and punched the air when he came out on stage and was announced as the Doctor. And I loved his run in the show more than a lot of people did. So I am a big, 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 big fan of Peter Capaldi and everything he does. Like, he's just legitimately one of my favourite people, never mind one of my favourite Yeah, actors. he seems really um, nice. <laughs> he seems yeah. like a nice person. <laughs> so, yeah, him obviously, you know, Suicide Squad in and of itself, I mean, I think this is shaping Sorry, up. Sorry, can you please refer to it uh, using its full title? <laughs> I was I was being from Yorkshire. I called it Suicide Squad. To Suicide Squad. Uh, to Suicide Squad. Um, yeah, increasingly interesting project, but still maybe not a hundred percent interesting. But just the idea of him potentially playing a DC Comics villain is naturally very exciting to me. Even more so when I thought about a couple of possibilities for who he could be. Now, I don't think that either of these will actually be the case, but I want to talk about them anyway because they're both connected to Grant Morrison. Uh, and to Grant Morrison's Animal Man comics. So in the pages of his Animal Man run, Grant Morrison brought uh, in a new version of an old Flash villain called the Mirror Master, who I'm sure must have been on the show, uh, although probably not in his classic orange and green costume. Um, But Morrison, for reasons best known to himself, just decided out of the blue to have the Mirror Master turn up and be a foul-mouthed Glaswegian. Uh, called McCulloch. Uh, he was later given the name, the first name Evan in later comics. Um, so there's your first possibility that if you're casting, you know, Peter, if you're casting Peter Capaldi, surely you know you want him <laughs> to be playing foul mouth Scottish person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that would be fantastic. I do. I, I. It's probably not because I don't think it's the case that he's just going to be playing like a costumed lead villain type character. Um, I think it's more likely that he'll be playing like a retired or inactive character who has maybe been in the Suicide Squad in the past and gets brought into the plot somehow. But another possibility, another member of the Suicide Squad, uh, and this ties into the fact that Peter Capaldi has had his head shaved, and he did say on stage at a recent convention that this was for a project that he couldn't name. Um, he actually said that, it, that the reason that his head was being shaved was because he had to have some prosthetics done, some some head casts, which is what's led people to talk about King Shark, which I'll come to okay. in a minute. And that also puts in another piece for what I think it could turn out to actually be. Um, but I'm just going with the fact that he's had to shave his head for this part because Grant Morrison is bald and Grant Morrison is a character in the Suicide Squad. And those of you who don't know about this might be struggling to believe me at this point, but Grant Morrison wrote himself into Animal Man. 
which I must have talked about on the podcast before. At the end of his, <laughs> yes. his run on Animal Man, Grant Morrison himself is a character. He turns up at the end and basically apologizes for the, for, for he thinks the run going to shit and how he has no way of ending it. And then, like, the issue is called Deus Ex Machina and it is a Deus Ex Machina ending because he just rewrites what's going on and then. Yeah, it's like a fourth wall breaking yeah. writer, uh, writer self insertion is what that is. Yeah. It, it like at a time when people weren't doing that as often as they do now. Like this was pre-Deadpool. This blew my mind when I first read it because it was one of the first examples I'd seen of the many, many examples of people doing that. Um, but then in in Ostrander's Suicide Squad run, they actually decided to bring that character back because by putting himself in the comic, Grant Morrison had made himself a character in the DC universe. So he got brought into the Suicide Squad as a character called the Writer. And he was drawn in the same style, and he walked around with a little laptop computer strapped to his chest that he would write on because he could see, like, he was useful because he was essentially precognitive because the plot would appear on his screen because it was being written. Um, and then he got killed. <laughs> he didn't see that one coming. He got killed, I think, by a werewolf. So he, he, was, he was only really in it very briefly as a gag, but technically Grant Morrison is a Suicide Squad character. So if Peter Capaldi is playing the writer with a Scottish accent, that would be absolutely incredible. And it almost feels like something that James Gunn would possibly think to do. So that's the theory, and I know it's not going to be true, and I'm going to be disappointed when it's not true, because basically he's either going to be playing Dr. Light or Mr. Freeze, and given the prosthetics thing, it's going to be Mr. Freeze. Oh, I have heard of him. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my very, very initial thought before I fell down a Scottish rabbit hole was Dr. Light. Like instantly, okay, you, you know, Doctor Light is established as having been a member. Um, he, you know, he could be a kind of older character. It totally makes sense. But there's no reason for Doctor Light to have prosthetics. Uh, King Shark, by the way, just to briefly, I'm sure we've talked about King Shark on the podcast. I'm sure, I think he's come up before um, as a ridiculous possibility for something. Oh no, because no, hang on, hang on. Wikipedia says that King Shark is in the film, but his voice is being provided by comedian Steve Adji. That's That must be Wikipedia nonsense. I've not seen that. Has that been confirmed? You know, I think everything about the Suicide Squad is just a mystery <laughs> at this point. Well, anyway, King King Shark is a big shark. Uh, he's just basically a humanoid shark. Right, isn't he on The Flash? He's like a he's like a shark that walks around with human legs. Yes, he has been on yeah. The Flash, voiced by Solid Snake himself, David Hayter. Wow. So uh, that would be a big... That would be another reuse of a flash character yeah but yeah my my money is absolutely on this being mr freeze because uh it makes sense for somebody of peter capaldi's age and physique and baldness (laughs) current baldness uh to play that character i'm so used to these sorts of properties having obscure characters that it had never occurred to me that it might be a character that i had heard of and that is (laughs) like a prominent part of pop culture that would feel to me like he must have a significant role then, right? Like, I feel like you wouldn't... Well, potentially, but it depends, again, if you're... As I say, I, I, I mean, I can't really envisage Peter Capaldi in a costume as, like, an active character in this. As I say, okay. I, I feel like his role will be either... I mean, it might be that he's not a, you know, a, a villainy type character at all, but my expectation would be that he probably used to be in the Suicide Squad rather than, like, he's a new recruit. Um... So Dr. Freeze would be like the retired Suicide Squad member. I think so, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and I, I think it makes sense even to, yeah, I, I think he can be a sort of retired, almost backgroundy kind of character or someone who they go to for some reason, even if it's a, 
reasonably big name character right like it'd be Mr. more Freeze. like the joker in the first yeah film. i mean actually now <laughs> you've said for that like five minutes despite jared <laughs> yeah. leto's commitment to that character <laughs> <laughs> but actually no i mean that, but again that's that's kind of yeah that's that's how you use your recognizable one but actually you're more interested in in making the film about the less one that was i find it i do find it interesting that mr freeze has become uh you know like for example a batman character that you would have heard of it's mm-hmm. like um because he because he was kind of such a nobody uh and then obviously i think 60s batman did a lot for him and then obviously because everyone knows about batman and robin right um but it's but like comics wise i think i think it's mainly mainly batman and robin <laughs> yeah but comics wise he's never been like a really big name i think the i think the animated series was known for kind of make i think it was the animated series that made him interesting like sort of gave him angst and stuff that actually you know sort of made people care about him so fair enough and um, um, given that we're talking about dc villain shall we move on to the next piece of uh news yes what could this possibly be about yeah well we, should we also say that i think another person considered for suicide squad was pete davidson or he's like in talks to be in it yeah does he have a profile outside of america and our as our weird like snl troubled youth I only know really... I mean, I know that he's a comedian, I know he's off SNL, and I know he's going out with Kate Beckinsale. Because Kate Beckinsale is quite well known here because of her dad. So. Yeah, and was dating. He's he's kind of become weirdly famous. He's like the Taylor Swift of, I don't know, <laughs> young men like dating lots of famous people. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he'll, he might be... He's, he weirdly feels like the perfect energy for what the Suicide Squad is, I think. Yeah. Like a weird sort of like... I can imagine, yeah, a slightly more satirical tattooed, version. Tattooed, grungy youth, I feel like, is the energy of the Suicide mm. Squad franchise. <laughs> imagine if he was replacing Jared Leto. That would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that actually would be great. <laughs> Sorry, Jared, you're Morbius now. Go away. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, more more DC villain news. Um, there is a teaser trailer for Birds of Prey. Or to give it its full title, "The Birds of the Prey." <laughs> um, now, James, I want you to actually give it its full title without reading it from somewhere. "Birds of Prey: The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn." Wow, I think it's Amber. But... <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. Um, so this teaser, which we have all just seen because we watched it immediately before starting the podcast, it's supposed to only be available in cinemas. But as with everything that's only available in one place, if you Google it, you can find it in seconds. Yeah, it's like a tie-in to the It Chapter 2. So I think, <laughs> I I have not seen It Chapter 1, but I think that they take the way that the It movies open with like a balloon and sort of, they're, they're like tricking you into thinking the movie's starting. And then mm-hmm. Harley pops up and says she's done with clowns and pops the balloon and quick little teaser. So I feel like I lost a little bit of the meta-ness of that, having not <laughs> known the intricacies of the it <laughs> franchise but yeah it's very short but it's a fun poppy little teaser yeah i mean the the thing that i think is most interesting about it is seeing margot robbie reprising that role and the sort of subtle changes she's made to mm-hmm. it like i don't know if it's just for this teaser but it seems a bit more manic and a bit less like uh i don't want to use the word sexy a bit less coy maybe there were set photos that came out and I just saw someone tweet like it's a relief to just see her in pants and all of them because yeah. she's either wearing like full <laughs> pants or shorts of a normal, you know, length. And as someone who's long been a proponent of superheroes wearing pants and or <laughs> yeah. some sort of body, you know, opaque tights under a skirt is fine. 
but I'm definitely pro Harley Quinn wearing clothes in a sequel to Suicide Squad or a <laughs> tangential film. I can't think what the production behind the camera difference between this yeah. and Suicide Squad <laughs> could possibly be to have, <laughs> to have caused that. <laughs> I mean, Margot Robbie's great in everything, so uh, there's not a huge amount of material here, but just it, it's enough to get me excited for what's coming next. I'm also super excited about Ewan McGregor being in it. I love Ewan. <laughs> he doesn't have a black skull face in it, though. So will he become Black Mask at the end? Do we think something horrific will happen to him and a black prosthetic mask will get fused to his face or something? No, they just know that uh, why would you cast Ewan <laughs> McGregor in a movie and cover up his face? <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent point. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is this is an interesting one because, I mean, the, the teaser kind of does this, but all this movie really needs to do to sell to people is go, look, it's Margot Robbie. Yeah, it's Margot Robbie and it's Harley Quinn, two things you love. Um, Because she is at that point in her career now. Uh, she she She's where Jennifer Lawrence was a few years ago, <laughs> where just literally going, look, she's in this film, will make people want to see it. And let's hope Margot Robbie um, doesn't make a bunch of bad X-Men films then. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to make a bunch of bad DC films instead. Um, no, I mean, I think this is... I mean, it, it, you get some glimpses. Uh, it doesn't seem to be... It doesn't seem to show us a lot in terms of like character costumey stuff. Like you get what I think is a shot of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, mm-hmm. uh, but I was watching because it's not the official version. It was in relatively low resolution on YouTube, but you know there was no there was there was no sense of oh wow there's a recognisable comics costume on anybody. It was just Mary Elizabeth Winstead kind of in dark and purple sort of huntress looking colours, uh, and there was a shot I think of Black Canary as well. Uh, where you again, you just kind of got a sense of her wearing a blue top. Um, so yeah, we'll see. But it's, I think, as a first bit of publicity, it kind of strikes the right tone. It's sort of, it's, um, it's very Deadpool, this isn't it? Mm, it's not, it's not aggressive, but it's just sort of, it's quite kind of cocksure and sort mm-hmm. of, um, yeah, which I think you know is is what this film needs to do. Mm-hmm. Um. So. Caroline, are you excited? I am, yeah. I actually, I mean, this ties into our previous conversation. I really liked Suicide Squad, <laughs> the first movie. <laughs> so, and my, I mean, really, mainly the reasons I like it are just Margot Robbie and Will Smith. So, I'm with you on that, definitely. Margot Robbie being in this and wearing pants, A plus right there. Um, <laughs> and even more, like, to me, the problem with the Suicide Squad is that there's not going to be Will Smith in it. Like, he really was very central to my enjoyment of that film. So it seems like, I don't know, it'll be curious to see what it, what a film without him is like. And it almost feels like, you know, if Birds of Prey comes out and is great, it'll be weird then to go back to the Suicide Squad world with Margot Robbie. It's just interesting that they're sort of like building two you know, franchises with her at once almost. So I'll be curious to see if that works or if we're sort of, mm. you know, over inundated with Harley Quinn stuff. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see Deadshot turn up in the Harley Quinn, sorry, in the Birds of Prey movie. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Just because that chemistry was was so good. Put Will Smith in every movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot more we can say about that, but I think we're all cautiously excited. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yep. And it's like not, you know, it's February next year. It's not that far away. Like it's exciting. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> I feel like we get this news and it's like in 2023, 20, something's coming and it's you Black know. Panther 2 in yeah. three years. Yeah. <laughs> but this is like, oh, there's like a there's a there's a relatively short amount of months until we can see this film. And that's exciting. Yes. 
Marvel could definitely learn something from that. Okay, um, so speaking of Marvel, nice segue, very professional. Um, <laughs> I have got written here, it says, New Mutants fuck up. Because if we are to believe reports, they have changed New Mutants again. It's still coming out at the same time it was coming out, but apparently they have gone back, re-edited it to make it less of an X-Men film, possibly putting it back closer to how it originally was before they did a bunch of reshoots. Who can tell at this point? Did they add any more characters? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just keep adding characters. I'd be very surprised if it at all resembles the movie that was originally shot. I can't wait to see like how much of it how much of the the film from its like original incarnation remains in the cinematic release. What cinematic release? Yeah, Quite. that's how I am. Good too. question. <laughs> <laughs> do, I mean, do we think it's coming out? It's currently scheduled for saying this off the top of my head, mm, March 2020. April 2020, early 2020. I don't think it's coming out. No, I don't think it's coming out. No. I think that's the position of this podcast is that it's probably not going to come out. <laughs> well, we we lost Gambit to have this over, so it's like <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing the thing for Gam- about Gambit is that it was never getting made. This is made. It's been made <laughs> at least made twice. And it's just not going to get released. Yeah. Yeah. Uh <laughs> maybe like maybe you know, remember Simon's plan on the last episode for what should be done with Spider-Man, where a different studio should get Spider-Man every year. Maybe every year, New Mutants in its current form should be handed to another studio who have to do, who have to work with what's there, but do reshoots to turn it into a different film and then release <laughs> it, and then it gets passed on to another. So it's kind of like a game of consequences, yeah. And it just gets passed on and passed on and passed on and just morphs into a different film each time. But it always has to still have some nugget of what was originally shot in 2017 when was it shot (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think 2017 yeah i mean some some reports have been saying that they're editing the film so that it could potentially fit into the marvel cinematic universe if it is good enough I think we're well past the point where anyone would consider it good enough because if it was good enough if it was good enough it would have come out out. no matter what yeah so I think anything else we hear is just sort of PR spin on the on the idea, whether that's from actual PR or just sort of well-meaning fans. I was at a, a grocery store and the cashier was, was right around the time Dark Phoenix came out and he was trying to describe to his fellow cashier New Mutants, but I like, couldn't remember anything about it. And I, and I, you know, filled him in and then I was like, oh, by the way, I don't think it's coming out. And he's, I'd never seen a person look like more upset by a piece of news. So I felt really bad for crushing his <laughs> dreams. But it was a funny, like, you know, you don't usually think of these weird factoids as coming in handy in random grocery store interactions. So for, for his sake alone, I hope that New Mutants comes out because he seemed really excited about it. <laughs> Uh, amazing i do i do find it really weird how like how completely the sort of nerdiest things that i loved when i was a kid have now penetrated society like mm-hmm. i've spoken before about how like having my co-workers discuss thanos and i'm like how how is this a thing how did this happen very strange like i knew when my when my mum was asking me about the avengers movie yeah like off her own back like that's when i knew like oh okay it's it's properly become pop culture now <laughs> very strange Speaking of pop culture, another good segue. Great. It was a great one. <laughs> Seamless, right? You, can, you can't see the joints. So, I mean, this is just kind of an update on the Spider-Man situation, which we've spoken before about and said, basically, Caroline, I know you share this view, that um, none of us are that bothered, really. Like, we had a good run, got five decent movies out of it. You know, let's just do some normal Spider-Man movies where he's not about junior Tony Stark for a bit, maybe. That'd be yeah. nice. 
A Spider-Man movie where that's not that doesn't inexplicably devote a third of its time to Happy Hogan would be pieces <laughs> in my book. Yeah, definitely. Um, but the the Sony Pictures chairman and CEO uh, Tony Vinciquera Vinciquera I can't say that name. Big Tony from Sony Pictures has said that for the moment the door is closed on any return for Spider-Man to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that he's also said. There is no ill will between Sony and Disney, which sounds like a lie to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's the latest. Like we were, we did sort of speculate, like maybe they're negotiating in public. But I think that I think it's definitely definitely over now. Yeah, it'll be curious to see what happens. I feel like we've lived through so many eras of things seeming like they'll never happen, and then they happen. Like I could see mm. this down the line changing, but I kind of agree we're probably not going to get an update. You know, in the next months that changed this decision at all yeah i mean you know the x-men eventually ended up at disney you know james gunn did come back to guardians but yeah i sort of i think this is the nail in the coffin for the tom holland in the mcu at least for the foreseeable yeah and i think it'll all be fine yeah i think i was thinking actually if we get a spider-man movie that reflects the last sort of couple of minutes of spider-man far from home i'll be extremely happy because, you know, it's been a long time since we just had Spider-Man in New York being Spider-Man, right? Yeah, it really, Tom Holland has really never been that. Like that yeah, part exactly. where he's swinging through New York at the end of that movie, it's like, oh, we have not seen this character really do this yet. Mm-hmm. Seb, how do you feel? I mean, I would like to see that, but bearing in mind that obviously they have to clear a certain hurdle <laughs> regarding the character before uh, you can just have Spider-Man just being Spider-Man around New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also, sorry, you know. Sorry, what? Do they? <laughs> As well, in the cliffhanger of... As in the cliffhanger at the end of the film. Far from home. The oh, fact yeah, that everyone yeah, knows yeah, that he's but... Spider-Man and everyone thinks he's a murderer. It's a pretty big yeah. deal, I mean, James. I have seen, <laughs> seen the film. I have seen a lot of people saying, like, oh, how are they going to have, like, how are they going to follow up that cliffhanger now? It's like, well, just just doing the film and not talking about Iron Man. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, the film doesn't have to... Yeah, I mean, I, I know, I, I'm not saying they can't pick up that cliffhanger. They absolutely can, because that cliffhanger is clearly part of the Spider-Man strand of story. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be quite straightforward to do... Avengersy films that don't happen to mention Spider-Man and Spider-Man films that don't happen to mention the events of all the other MCU stuff for even a couple of years. Well, I'd say a couple of years as if you get multiple Spider-Man films in that time, but you know what I mean? Certainly the next cycle of films, um, it doesn't rule out then having one after that where all of a sudden they do reference to forget because you know what that happens in comics all the time there are times when you'll be reading a spider-man comic and it's as if there are no other superheroes and there are times you'll be reading it and he's part of what's going on and it's just that's what happens in a shared universe where things cross in and out with one another so um yeah i think i you know unless people just don't want to see a Spider-Man that doesn't have this connection. There's nothing to be particularly upset about with this because there is no way that whatever the situation is next year has to be the situation forever. Um, And as you say, you know, the fact that the X-Men can now be part of the MCU just shows you how much things can change. Because nobody ever thought Disney were going to buy Fox You are completely right, because who wants to see Spider-Man when we we can have Cyclops? (laughs) I think it's also worth remembering that there are no announced like Avengers style crossover films in phase four yet. Like everyone's sort of operating on the assumption that we will get another Avengers film of some kind. And I don't even necessarily fully feel like we will. And I think they 
we could easily, either they could move away from that altogether, which seems less likely, or we could get, you know, our next big crossover, they've got Guardians and Thor and Captain Marvel all in space. Like, it could be a big space set adventure in which Kate and you somehow bring, you know, Black Panther up there. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be (laughs) they're in New York battling, you know. There is a, yeah, there's a real danger in going on to do another Avengers-y type thing immediately after the end of a cycle that has been so resoundingly successful at doing it because all you're doing is setting up to go yeah but this isn't as good as the previous avengers right Ooh, Um, ooh, this is you just gave me an idea right here's my pitch sort of (laughs) five years down the line or mm, yeah four or five years down the line instead of avengers secret wars introduce the x-men in that film just chuck all the marvel heroes on battle world put the x-men in there too could be done could be. Not, I mean, I'm, not hear, I'm not hearing a huge amount of support here. Well, I don't really know exactly what you said, but I support you on principle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know what you said, but it was a Jonathan Hickman comic, so I don't know exactly what happened in it. No, 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 no. The original Secret Wars. Oh, the original Secret Wars. You Why know, the you one say? that was the one that was created to sell toys. That yeah. one. There we go. I'm glad. I'm glad we resolved that. Well, they'll they'll certainly sell a lot of toys if they do. That, <laughs> Can I tell a tangential story about? Spider-Man Far From Home? Please. So, okay, so uh, spoilers for Endgame and Far From Home. Um, So I went to see, my parents are sort of, they're into Marvel, but they're not the type to rush out to the theater to see it, and Endgame was a little long for them, so they were going (laughs) to wait to rent it, but I was home when Spider-Man was coming out, and my mom agreed to go with me, and obviously, you know, I warned her this was going to spoil major events from Endgame, and she said that was fine, but the movie opens with, you know, the tribute to everybody that died, including mm-hmm. Captain America. So then when she finally saw Endgame, she had the, like, delightful reverse spoiler of thinking that a character <laughs> who she was told died actually got a happy ending. Yeah. I was like, wow, that ended up being a nice little yeah. moment for her. <laughs> I mean, just while we're mentioning Endgame, I, it finally came out on disc in the UK uh, this week. On my birthday, in fact, I um, rewatched it over the last two nights. I cried three times, <laughs> three, just sitting by myself in my living room. See, James, you just you've just got no emotion. That's nowhere near enough time. <laughs> it was mainly, I think, it was the Scott and Cassie bit, uh, the bit where um, the bit where Tony died, and sure. uh, the bit where um, thingy asked for cheeseburgers. Yeah, I was going to say it has to be cheeseburgers with you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Also, when Black <laughs> yeah. Widow eats that sandwich, it's <laughs> <laughs> very sad. Good film. Good film. Still That's prefer right. Infinity War, but... Let's not do that now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so that's all the news. There's not a huge amount of news, but I think we really milked it. So that's good for us. We'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Alita Battle Angel. But first, let's listen to the trailer. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You told me the story of the war when the ground shook and the sky burned. Of the ones that survived, who awoke to a different world, where the powerful prey on the weak. But that's not the way it has to be. When I found you, your very human brain was miraculously intact. It's the loneliest feeling not to know who you are. In time, you'll remember. I remember black skies, the lightning all around me. Alita is new again. It's a harsh world down here. You gotta be willing to do what it takes. Alita, run! My God. She's the last of her kind. She contains technology that have been lost for 300 years. Let me show you something. This body, I feel a connection to it. I can't explain. You know more about me than you're saying. Alita, some things have been left forgotten. And I'll find out for myself. She's threatening the natural order of things. I need you to destroy her. Alita, they will come for you. I'll have to face them head on. I'm gonna need you to stand way back. Tonight is not a game. It is a hunt. And we're back. So there's one question that I, I want to ask you both before we properly <laughs> get started. And I know there are quite a lot of opinions about Battle Angel Alita, as I'm going to insist on calling it, because, you know, <laughs> Alita Battle Angel is kind of a difficult construction. Yeah. Um, doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily. 
So some people think it was bad. Some people think it was good. I I would like to know, do you think it was fantastic or merely groundbreaking? (laughs) (laughs) Great unbiased question, I would say. Uh, Really appreciate that. Starting off. Here's what I'll say about Alita Battle Angel slash Battle Angel Alita. I was never bored while I was watching it. I went in with very, I don't know if I went in with high expectations that it would be good, but I definitely went in for with high expectations for just like what the experience would be. Because I feel like I saw a lot of people that love it. It became, it like briefly became part of a really weird culture war against Captain Marvel. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. And so I just was like, I just didn't know what I was going to experience. I still don't <laughs> think I know exactly what I did experience. I, I didn't, I was hoping I would love it in the way that I love Jupiter Ascending and Valyrian and the Thousand Planets or whatever it was called. Yes. And I don't, it did not reach that level for me, but I was consistently entertained and it was significantly better than Ready Player One. So that's sort of where I'm coming down <laughs> on yeah, Alita I Battle mean, Angel. It, for me, it definitely does, it lands around the Jupiter Ascending slash Valyrian uh camps so seb how did how did you feel about it because i know you were very enthusiastic about not watching this film <laughs> um yeah because i well it's funny yeah because i yeah because I, I, i'm generally not into um you know kind of anime manga kind of stuff although something that i realized from watching this because it made me think about all the various things that i like that are a bit like it is that without realizing it i think i really like cyberpunk and I don't think I'd really <laughs> identified before as someone who likes that style, but actually I think I do because, as I say, this film was making me think about uh, whether it, whether it's like games or films or that kind of thing. Like the thing that I kept thinking of was Deus Ex: Human Revolution, which is one of my favourite ever games and that shares <laughs> a lot in common with this. Um, but no, I what you say about yeah it, about it being a sort of a Valyrian Jupiter ascending kind of film now i haven't seen either of those films yet but wow get on I, it because they are well, incredible i kind of to an extent and i wouldn't say wholeheartedly but to an extent i kind of got from this what i see other people getting from those which is the like i i can't objectively say that it's really, really good at everything it's doing because there are some things that it does really badly. <laughs> but I, I, I'd agree with Caroline in that, yeah, I wasn't bored. I expected it to maybe be a bit of a slog, and it wasn't. Um, and I did, for all of its flaws, I kind of found myself quite pulled into it and pulled <laughs> Victory. into its its world. Because actually, I mean, well, you know, we'll get into stuff in detail, but honestly, world building, I think, is one of the things that it does best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've, I, I, I will say, probably my main thing and the, and the biggest kind of compliment I can give it is I got to the end and I was like, I if the sequel existed now, I would sit down and watch the sequel straight away. <laughs> Oh, I'm quite. I'm pleased to hear that because yeah, I I did not expect you to have that reaction. It suggests to me you should go and watch Valerian and Jupiter Ascending because they're <laughs> they're very much similar experiences. Mm. It's just uh, yeah, never got round to them. But yes, yeah. I'm interested now in in what you guys thought was the the thing that drew you into the film on that sort of on on that level. Um, because for me, I guess it partly is the world building. Um. It, it's sort of the amount of ideas that they kind of throw 
at you and importantly throw away <laughs> like they'll chuck it they'll chuck a concept out and they yeah. won't spend any time on it they'll just be like oh yeah the, here's a thing like oh yeah you know the this the the motorball players come and get free fixes or the um you know the bounty hunters hunters don't attack uh Dokido because he he fixes them up when they're you know damaged they those things don't really tie into anything they're just there in the plot and they serve a purpose for that second but what they do is create this sort of massive tapestry of a world where you can see a lot more has gone on and a lot more will go on and i think that's the thing that i like about it and the same is true of valyrian and jupiter ascending like they're just utterly unprecious about everything they put on the screen Mm. i think that i think the little things you just mentioned were good examples of world building but i think actually my biggest problem with this movie was it felt like every scene was exposition there was never like a character scene and there and were yet, so there's many lots that doesn't get explained that's the yeah irony. exactly too there's so i have like a list of like 20 questions that i'm hoping <laughs> one of you can answer for me because i was very confused by things but i think that there's not enough character stuff to go along with the exposition And I think that there are too many concepts. Like, I wish that I was a script editor for this and can be like, okay, you don't need both bounty hunting and motorball. Like, pick a lane (laughs) because these are two, you know, potentially compelling ideas, but it's going to work better if it's streamlined. You don't need, like, five different villains of varying levels because that's going to make your movie feel incomplete. Like, you know what I mean? It's going to make it feel fragmented. If you have one main villain and then surprise at the end, there's, like, a bigger villain. I felt like it needed just to be streamlined. And I think Mm -hmm. what was missing for me, like, I actually think Jupiter Ascending and Valyrian, like, I got very emotionally invested in those movies, as silly as they were. (laughs) And I got very emotionally invested in those characters. And I never, for whatever reason, I never felt that connection to the world of Alita. Like, I never, I liked Alita okay, but I never felt emotionally invested in her, which to me is what separates this from those other movies. And that might just be, I don't know if that's just a me thing or whatever like i don't think necessarily jupiter ascending has like the most incredibly written characters or anything but i could emotionally connect to those stories in a way that i struggled to with alita i i definitely would not say that i had really any emotional connection with it um i'd say i i felt in, i felt engaged with its world in a sort of i'm enjoying what this is doing and the things that it's created and i'd like to see more of them i yeah i didn't buy in emotionally to the character stuff at all because the thing that it wants you to get emotionally invested in is the thing that i think is absolutely the worst thing about mm-hmm. the film uh i don't think <laughs> are, it's a great... are we talking about the romance yes and specifically the character involved in the you romance monster but we'll, we'll come to that <laughs> absolute monster um no we'll, i I've, i'll have words to say about about dear hugo um <laughs> But um, oh what I did find is that I just, and again, this kind of surprised me for a film where the main thing I knew about it was it seems a little bit creepy that it's a film about a robot girl woman who's kind of a bit teenage girly, <laughs> but then a bit older. That is 300 uh, years old and played yeah. by a 34 year old actress. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, and and in that in that way that things of this type sometimes can be a bit creepy and i've made jokes at james about this constantly since he said he liked the film (laughs) what surprised me was that given that i thought that is how likable i found it and apart from a couple of moments that don't land i think it avoided the creepiness almost entirely and because what i think worked is 
and actually, I think I think it's it's slightly a failing of the film. I think a failing of the film is that because of certain moments and because of kind of certain things like with language and a little bit too much on the violence, this goes to age rate age wise. This goes a bit too high because I think in almost everything it's doing, this is Robert Rodriguez basically in the making films for his kids mode. And when Rob Rodriguez does that, when he does a Spy Kids or a Shark Boy and Lava Girl, he's really earnest about it. He's not cynical. And this film is not cynical, despite the fact that it's, you know, cyberpunk dystopia. It's not a cynical film. It's 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 quite sincere and mm-hmm. likable in what it's doing. Um, and 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 played with a very straight bat. Um, and as I say, I I think if you take out certain elements of this film, this film is perfect for like a kind of ten to twelve year old. That's an interesting point. It is kind of young adulty in mm. a in a sort of you know it it's got that teen melodrama element to it. Mm. I, that was one of my big well yeah one of my big questions was like what is the ideal age for this? Because when it started, I was like, oh, this is skewing a lot younger than I thought. Like the scene, especially the scene where they first play the like scrimmage motorball game and she's like introduced to all the Mm. teens. I was like, oh, this almost feels like Ninja Turtles or something like this is a very 90s like kids, you know, and here's a cute YA romance. So I was like, okay, cool. It's skewing like to me younger than something like Jupiter Ascending. But then it's like this is also a scene where, you know, our protagonist like smears a dead dog's blood on her face and cuts off her (laughs) boyfriend's head and like keeps it attached alive via a heart. Like it gets very, very gruesome. And I couldn't that was throwing me off the whole time too. Like who who is this for? Because it felt like the <laughs> YA things were too young for what I wanted, but then they then the like gruesome things were too gruesome for what I wanted as well. And that sort of left me in a no man's land. <laughs> that is fair. I think actually uh, the I think the violence probably not a huge problem for kids because I'm I'm trying to remember how old I was when I saw Terminator and it was definitely right like hang on Terminator two or Terminator yeah Terminator two I was gonna it say. was definitely about <laughs> Terminator is four and eighteen <laughs> yeah Terminator Terminator two like much much more fun version yeah. of that and obviously you get the like shocking bits like where he picks his eyes out with a knife or whatever but yeah oh no cuts his arm off yeah yeah oh no I mean yeah t- t- Terminator two is basically a kids film. Uh, yeah um, just with a bit of swearing in it <laughs> but like those are the bits where in the playground you're like ah oh, the bit where he cuts his arm off it's so <laughs> gross but actually you love it and i feel like that is true of most of this there is that slightly dodgy bit with a sex robot that turns to a spider oh yeah that's not so great yeah where she like crawls up the wall where they're trying to assassinate um you know and it has got an f word in it it's got its one allowable F. Yeah, that was just to get it. The... <laughs> but it's still uh, PG thirteen exactly. yeah. in the US. Yeah, but it's still. I mean, I agree. It's all. It also has that cheat of like the violence is against robots, so there's no blood, so it can you can do anything. <laughs> it's still PG thirteen, but yeah. yeah, I think the only blood is the dog's blood, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and they <laughs> yeah. don't actually show the dog dying. But I still felt like the even if it wasn't like inappropriately violent, the level of violence was still odd with the like. Hey kids, let's go play motorball. Energy of the beginning that was like so mm. young. Like to to yeah. me I was like, oh, this doesn't feel like it's aimed at me. It's so cheesy. But then, you know, I don't think the the violence is necessarily aimed at like kids, I don't know, at kids either. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. It's it's tough to reconcile those things. Um it's interesting said that you talked about the sort of optimism of it because I think that in a way that makes it the the film feel like it's skewing mm. younger, which is that 
like most of the uh, certainly all the heroes in this film like all the the protagonists who are you know i'm I'm thinking of ido and hugo and uh elisa like none of them have like mm. a dark side specifically like they're all they're all mitigated with they're trying to do good things yeah and it's the, the world as well. i mean even well yeah because even even hugo's mate who's like the the worst of the uh the junker guys he still like you know gets a heroic moment and but i think it, even with the world it's like you know it's not a dissimilar setup to something like a hunger games where it's you know you've got the you've got the rich bit of society and you've got the poor bit of society and there's like through this sporting event there's one this deadly sporting event there's one way to escape and become a part of the rich part of society um but it never like you get a little bit at the start about like not really having any money. But even then, it's not like we won't be able to afford to eat. It's you know we'll have to shut the clinic down or whatever. It's like there's never really a sense of the this grimy, as I say, essentially dystopia that they live in actually being that bad. Particularly given that even though there's like no police, like it's pretty mm-hmm. well policed by the bounty hunters <laughs> and the big Judge Dredd style robots. Like it, it's actually you know it's it, it's <laughs> like you look at it and you think, okay, well it's not great, but also it's definitely not the worst dystopia that we've seen. I say it's 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 the film's not really interested in kind of painting this horrific picture of a horrible life that they all live. You know, you've had this war in the past that it talks about, and when I say talks about, I mean forces you to go and look up on the internet what the actual backstory is because um, <laughs> i don't think by the way and we'll, we'll come to this a bit more but i don't think the film ever tells you what urm means or stands for unless i missed it i don't think it, yeah, it does. spells it out yeah, does yeah. it oh, okay there's a very awkward like scene where laura condor is like United Republic of Mars, URM. It was another scene oh, okay. where it's like, you are in a oh, weird I missed that line. Like, okay. <laughs> movie right now. Yeah. Well, but the point is, it, does, it doesn't dwell on that stuff. No, not at uh, all. But, um, and I also find it weird that like no one seems to recognise that she's Martian, but in all the flashbacks, the only other people who have big eyes like her are also URM, so surely everyone would immediately... Anyway. <laughs> yeah, only only the berserkers look like her, oh, okay. and everyone else like the berserkers have been gone for hundreds of years. So people don't recognise that the big eyes are a thing. Okay. Uh, anyway, that was a sidetrack just because yeah, the film doesn't explain a lot of stuff. But as I say, clearly it's kind of, it's, you didn't it, understand it. It's, it's not got this kind of horribleness to it. It's like they they can all other than, you know if they hadn't got involved in being chased around by bounty hunters, they could actually all kind of get on with their lives a bit <laughs> yeah it'd be quite nice so. i mean to be fair hugo and them are like accosting people and stealing their body parts in order to survive so there's like a level don't need to go to salem <laughs> right yeah that's true <laughs> but that's that's to get to yeah, salem, that's to get to salem. That's not even, yeah like if if they weren't focusing on getting to salem everything would be they'd fine ju- they'd like just, they've got they'd oranges, just be going and watching got... motorball and motorball is fucking yeah. awesome so i'd be happy to right? live in a world where i could just go and watch that every day <laughs> I really liked Motorball. I would watch an entire film about Motorball. I'm I'm very surprised and also gladdened by that because watching the Motorball scenes in the cinema, I was like wrapped. I was like, this is the most awesome well, thing I've ever I seen. I mean, it's a massive ripoff, obviously, of Rollerball. 
because it's almost exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. basically a cross between football and motorsport. Why? Why would I not like? <laughs> and I actually, what I really liked was the way it leans in the the fact that they had pits and pit crews. I was like, they really leaned into really making it a cross between a motor race and a ball game, and that's what I think mm-hmm. set it apart a bit. The fact that it was it was about the technology as much as just the going around really fast and attacking each other. It was really nicely put, and it had a good. And actually, this is true. I think of a lot of the the action in the film it, it had a good sense of what was happening at speed like you know when you when mm-hmm. you when you've come up with a concept like that that doesn't actually exist so you've got to picture it and you've got to convey what's actually happening i i got a sense of what was going on every time they were doing one of those scenes and i just thought it looked really fun so yeah I could, I'm, I'm i'm a motorball fan caroline motorball fan yes or no <laughs> Well, so you said that you saw this when it came out yes. like in theater. Did you see it in 3D? Uh, I think I, it had a. I big... honestly don't remember. <laughs> this was one. This was for the most part. I'm okay usually watching movies at home. This was one of the rare times where I was like, "Oh, I really wish that I had seen this on the big screen because I could appreciate mm. the action on my TV." But I think I would have appreciated it more in theaters, in cinemas. Yeah, it's definitely true. This was the second time I'd watched it. Um, and when it, when I was watching it on my TV, I was like, I'm a little bit disappointed in how these motorball scenes are playing compared to how they were mm. on the on the big screen. Because it's the cinema cinematic experience is so immersive. Like I definitely saw it in IMAX, if not in 3D. And I was watching this on yeah. my and... phone, so imagine how much I would have enjoyed it on the cinema screen. <laughs> I think that overall the effects in this are really impressive. This is like mm. a James Cameron. He didn't direct it, but he has been involved like since 2000 this was like gonna be his follow-up to titanic Mm -hmm. and kept getting pushed back and then he did avatar and then passed it on to robert rodriguez but it's got that like sheen of you know the incredible james cameron technology and i do think that the way that they integrate the cgi with the real world people is really impressive and it's and i think they make a really smart decision to build a lot of practical sets that sort of mm. make this like Iron City world feel very tangible and help you sort of buy into the CGI of the various characters. Mm. So on that level, I appreciated it. I tended to like the action, the like fighting bounty hunter style action more than the motorball action, mostly because I just think motorball is kind of a silly concept. <laughs> I'm not still, denying again, that it's it was, silly. <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like, you know, you get to the Quidditch scenes in the later Harry Potter books and you're like, there are more important priorities. Like, why are we doing this? And it felt like it's weird. This, this, this pisses all over Quidditch. <laughs> it's weird to establish a world where it's like your job is bounty hunting but then also it's really important that you play this game and they sort of add this thing where like going to Zalem is the you know the prize you get for winning so that's supposed to add more stakes but I also just like this was many of my questions were actually anchored around motorball so are the rules of motorball that you can just murder anyone or is it or is the idea that you like injure them and it's usually okay maybe someone will accidentally get killed because there's a part where like everyone in the motorball race that she's con- that Alita's competing in, they're only there to murder her. So theoretically, it's going to be a giant sporting event where everyone is watching like six people murder one woman, which I know there are no police, but it still seems like that would be <laughs> like an issue of some kind. It doesn't seem to have the stringent rules that Rollerball, like Rollerball did have quite specific <laughs> set of rules on, on that front, but... 
I think it sort of harks back to the days of gladiatorial combat. Yeah. Sure. Which is just like, you know, you can you can kill people if you want to. Like, you don't really see people scoring points that much in the, in the professional motorball. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It was also like, what art? You just put the ball in the hole. I, I don't know. It was... It just ended up feeling silly to me, especially when it was like the stakes are life or death. I was like, but I don't know. Just don't play this game then. Like, I don't know. It seems easy to avoid this. I was much more interested in the bounty hunter side of things than the motorball side of things. I do wonder with motorball, like how how many people are at the top of the motorball game? Because it seems like you get one chance and then you're dead by the end of that race. Right. Unless you're Jai Courtney and then you can yeah. be the, the winner for one 30 second cameo. Yeah. That said, I I did also really enjoy the fight in the um, Bounty Hunter bar. I was mm-hmm. I was going to message you after I watched that scene and James and say, see if you can guess where the point where I decided I quite liked this film was, and it was the barroom brawl scene. <laughs> Not specifically for the action, just for that whole scene, the tone of that scene. And um, what's his name? Jeff Fahey as the uh, <laughs> Mad Dog McCree type guy with the dogs. Yeah. And I, the, the, I was like, I get it now. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I had been enjoying the film up to that point, but I think that scene, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with with the tone of this film and what it's doing. Um, that was because it, and it was, it was what you were saying about it kind of coming up with so many concepts and like the concept of this, this old Western style hunter warrior who has robotic dogs. I was like, I'd watch a whole film about that guy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's having these little concepts that it chucks in there. Um, yeah, that was, that's really fun. I think that's also a scene where Alita herself, like you sort of get her as a character more from that point on, or she sort of like comes into her own a little bit more there. Cause like the basic premise mm-hmm. is that. Christoph Waltz plays this doctor in the 26th century who finds she's like a robot. These were other questions I had. She's a human brain in a like cyborg head and shoulders that he puts into a body that he had previously designed for his daughter. Names her after his murdered daughter, which I did find weird and creepy. Yeah. Uh, and then it's like the first act is just like a lot of her getting to know this world and like testing her limits. And he keeps being like, you know, don't, get involved in all this stuff, just start new, your new life. And she decides she wants to be this bounty hunter, hunter warrior. And it feels like in that barroom brawl, it's like her unique mix of weird, like naive, but like knowingly naive optimism mixed with her like insane berserker, yeah. you know, <laughs> The fact strength. that she's a, like the deadliest weapon on the planet. Right. Like that felt like up until then, it, I couldn't quite tell if the movie like knew what it was doing with her or if it was just sort of like, you know, writing her strangely. But it felt like in that scene, it locked into, I locked into understanding her better. So I think that that helps the movie a lot from that point on. I mean, it's one of the things I find interesting is how much her performance sort of affects the tone of the film. Mm -hmm, For sure. Which is that they could have done this, this film, like same script, different performance could have been a lot darker. Yeah. And her her sort of surprised reaction to things and you know her warm reaction to things gives it a completely unique tone like it reminds me of tron legacy in that sense in the uh quora in tron legacy could be a sort of standard you know kick-ass female uh computer program or whatever she is but 
actually Olivia Wilde's performance gives her a lot of naivety and sort of vulnerability that you would not expect from that character in a sort of genre movie. And there's a lot in this one, in, in Battle Angel Lita, that I think has the same effect. Have either of you guys read the manga that this is based on from the 90s? I, I read a bunch of it, yeah. There's were a lot you, so of it. So were you a fan of that before you went into the movie? Uh, so, okay, so my way into this was that I the first ever anime thing I watched was Ghost in the Shell, which I caught on um, on the sci-fi channel, I think, in the sort of mid-90s. And having done that, I sort of went to the video shop and I was like, I'm going to buy some more anime, what looks a bit like Ghost in the Shell. And the thing I picked up was Battle Angel Alita. And this film is actually a lot closer to being an adaptation of the anime than it is the manga. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sequences that are sort of shot-for-shot remakes even. Um, so in that sense, it almost doesn't matter how much it skews to the manga because it's a lot closer to the anime, which is a sort of condensed version of the first couple of volumes. Like Motorball doesn't appear in the anime because that doesn't get introduced until sort of volume four of the, of the manga. Mm -hmm. Um, and they put it in this movie, I think partly because Robert Rodriguez, when he was given the script had a sort of, I think it was 400 pages long or something, like, or maybe 300. It was massive anyway, and he had to cut out a lot because James Cameron basically said, like, I can't make this movie any leaner. You see what you can do with it. And after Robert Rodriguez had done it, he said, okay, do you want to direct it as well? So that's how Rodriguez got involved, um, which was by cutting down this absolutely massive movie into a much smaller one. Do you feel like Alita is a similar character from who she is in the source material? Or is this like a different, a very different take on her? Um, there, There is a lot more optimism in this version of Alita. Um, in, in the manga, she's a lot more serious and a lot more sort of, I don't say grim. She's sort of, she's got a lot of determination to, you know, kill everyone basically, to be the, be the bounty hunting weapon that she was built to be. Mm-hmm. I do think, Rosa Salazar, who plays Alita, is incredible. Like, I think she's genuinely giving a really, really incredible performance. And she's kind of like... Especially through all that CGI. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And she's kind of the key to the film success. Like you said, I was getting like some Buffy vibes for sure. And like how openly she embraced like, I'm also a teenage girl and I'm just going to be like flirty. But then also that was in the bar scene too that, I mean, we'll get to the Hugo-Alita relationship. But the one moment it really worked was... She was like, have my back. She does all these incredible things. He does like one little thing. She's like, oh my God, thank you so much. Like she's very, you know, it's like very cute, a cute moment. And then I was also kind of getting some Wonder Woman vibes too from yeah, the yeah. Patty Jenkins film. Like very, you know, I'm coming into this world and I'm naive, but I'm also, you know, very competent, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting mix. I think a lot of times we get these sort of like quippy, serious, like, you know, quote unquote badass female leads that end up being kind of boring. Alita almost falls into the like, fifth element Lilo thing of like, ooh, I'm sexy and I'm confused. <laughs> and so I need help. And like, that's the attractiveness of me, which I don't necessarily hate as a trope, you know, if used sparingly, but sometimes can be a little bit much. So she was falling into that a little bit sometimes. But I think, again, it was like the more the film embraced it, like there's a scene where she literally takes her heart out and tries to give it to Hugo. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, if you're going to go to this level, just go mm-hmm. to it. And I think having like he's he Hugo's kind of like, don't do this, like the world is dangerous. And she just says like, this is who I am. And I think her embracing that was more interesting to me than someone like Lilo, who's just like genuinely confused <laughs> yeah, as to what's confused happening. And so she's an interesting mix of like, yeah, Alita's like an interesting mix of owning her personality mm-hmm. and sort of challenging it. So in that way, I think it's a success. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's very interesting. Like the, 
you know, the melodrama of this film is part of what charmed me because it's just, it just wears everything on its sleeve. Like it doesn't, it, there's not much subtlety in here. I was I was quite irritated by it early on in the sort of, it's those early, it's the bit with the chocolate and stuff. I was just like, this is going a bit too oh sort of, oh. Well, should we just talk about the romance? Because I yeah, feel like I that think sounds we're like to. it's the issue that we all <laughs> might have with this film. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, she spends a lot of time uh, hanging out with Hugo, who is a, a boy who lives in the scrapyard, and he... Like a shocking amount of time. <laughs> I was not expecting this to be a full-on romance. Like, this is more romantic content than I've seen in, like, an action property like this in a it's long time. It's interesting, isn't it? Because superhero films tend to have a love interest, but they, they don't lean into the romance in the mm. way that this film did. I mean, so you know the bit right at the very end when um, Hugo, um, like his robot body gets chopped up by that ring thing and then he's he's dangling from the edge. Oh my God, so much happens in this film, you guys. It drops and falls. You know know that bit? This film would be so much better if that had happened in the first five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that though, because she just, she saved his life and they're going to go to Salem and then he... Falls, yeah, off a, falls. falls off a building. Hugo. But seriously, could he, could he just have not fallen off a building at the start? Because, like, oh, God. I hated him so much. I hated everything he said and everything he did. I really, really did not like that character. <laughs> yeah. Character. Just in general. The, the... I really did not like that flesh bag <laughs> with a voice. What did they call They had a term that they called the humans. Oh, they did, didn't they? Meat yeah. man or something. <laughs> um, the dialogue in general in this film is very bad, but I think it's the worst for Hugo, which doesn't do the actor any favors. And I think that this actor is the weakest link. Like he's not, I think in the right role, he could be good. I don't think this is the right role. And I don't think he can carry as mm. much of this film as he's asked to do. He's a very certain type, isn't he? Yeah, very, he was very like 90s. Yeah, really, really hero throwback. to me. Like yeah. very like Jonathan Taylor Thomas, like <laughs> there's like a blankness about him that I think, I don't know. I've noticed a lot of times that in female driven things, they don't have good love interests. And I think it's because if you're a guy in Hollywood, hmm. you can just get a franchise yourself. So why would you ever yeah, be the why love would you, interest? Why would you Whereas if you're, if you're Gwyneth Paltrow and you've won an Oscar, yeah, of course you're going to play Iron Man's girlfriend. <laughs> but if you're a guy, it's like you just get to be Iron Man. So they don't, there aren't good men to be. I think that's why pe- yeah. I think was the thing that people really jumped on with Wonder Woman and that, you know, that Chris Pine had actually taken yeah. that role when ordinarily he would be. And okay, the film did sort of push him into a co-lead role. But even so, <laughs> um, that was unusual for doing that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this kid, Keen- Keenan, Kean? Johnson. Keenan Johnson, no- yeah. No Chris Pine. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although I will say, my caveat is that as I was watching it, there was a moment where I was like, oh, if I was 13 years old, I would be so madly in love with this actor. <laughs> so if this movie is aiming at a 13-year-old audience, maybe mm. this is really successful. But I think watching with slightly older eyes, it just is so, it's so generic. The character's so generic. Their love story happens so quickly. All the emotional like connections in this movie happen so quickly. <laughs> she just falls in love with the first yeah. guy she meets. <laughs> it's literally like, oh, the first older man I meet, that's my dad. The first younger man I meet, that's my boyfriend. And they're the only people I care about in the world. It's a shame she didn't meet Jackie O'Haley's big cyborg first. Or this film would have been a completely different story. <laughs> uh 
But yeah, I was just shocked by how much just the whole structure of this movie is bizarre. Like so there you have to be so invested in their relationship. And then it and then he like dies, but except she cuts off his head to save him. And then she gives him a robot body. So it's like, oh cool. So in the sequel it'll be like her and her <laughs> robot boyfriend. No surprise, he just dies. Yeah. <laughs> it's so strangely structured. Really quickly. I mean, it, it races, doesn't it? In that, those last kind of 15, 20 minutes, all of a sudden, it's, it's, it is almost like, oh, shit, we've got to clear all these bits of setup for when we go on to the next story. And, yeah, it's like if it feels like there's a whole act with him as a robot or as a cyborg completely missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that again, this is something that, that they've adapted from the anime where like so the anime is two ovas which are original video adaptations meaning basically standalone specials and battle angel alita is two half hour episodes that are joined together to make one movie essentially and you know he he dies in about minute 25 of episode two and then dies again at the end of episode two so that, in a way, they've kind of adapted the structure of the anime there, mm. and this is a sort of casualty of it, which is that any with any logical eyes, you would look at that and go, well, this happens, this has to happen at the start of the third act, and then he dies at the end of the third act. Mm-hmm. But no, they didn't go that way. <laughs> I do think one of the biggest flaws of this is that they are, you know, as a lot of things do, they're they're gearing up for a franchise. But there's a way to gear up for a franchise and leave a story feeling complete, and there's a way to do it where it feels like you forgot to write a third act, as <laughs> you said, Seb. Like, I paused this to go to the bathroom, and I was like, oh, there's probably, like, another, you know, 45 minutes left. And there were 15 minutes. And it's like, <laughs> oh, this is none of this is going to get resolved. And I think that that was really – that's, like, the biggest flaw. You don't come away feeling like you've watched a complete story. And I think that that does sort of – for me, at least, it, like, sours the enjoyment that I had because it feels like – I don't know. It's just, like, a little trick to get you to come back and watch the second one, which I'd be happy to do, but I'd be happier to do if this felt a little bit more complete than it does. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, again, like, the the anime – adapts a couple of volumes of the manga which means that there's nothing resembling a complete story and like the the anime didn't do well enough to to get more installments so you know there are there are hundreds of chapters of the manga that never got adapted into the anime and the story goes to so many different places that you just it's it's tough to wrap it up and do a complete story without it feeling truncated in some way because the setup starts at such a sort of basic simple level like you've got all these questions like what what happened with the um like what what the berserkers what's her nature why are they here mm-hmm. why is she here where did she come from what was a berserker doing in Zalem? you know what's ido's story all of these supporting characters by adapting the anime they've created a situation where there are a lot of dangling threads that when even in a sequel you wouldn't be able to to resolve them quickly yeah they really do introduce that mystery of like where did she come from and she's having these flashbacks the whole time mm-hmm. to her past as a soldier and you sort of think okay these are all going to tie in together in some way to complete her arc by the end of this film and they just don't at all like there's no resolution there <laughs> other than like halfway through she kind of discovers her powers but there's no like like the resolution is like oh i remember that one time this spinny death thing was coming for me yeah. and now it's coming for me again and that doesn't even isn't even helpful because she isn't even able yeah. to warn hugo in time <laughs> so that stuff all i also think that this movie really has a villain problem because it has so many of them yeah let, let's just quickly go through the list <laughs> of villains so there is Vector, played by Mahashala Ali, in one of his uh, obviously quite disinterested performances. 
Who's like, like theoretically presented as the big boss. And like when she defeats him, that's supposed to be like, okay, now the movie's done. Yeah. But I don't think he ever feels like that. At least he didn't to me. No, not least because for most of the film, we see that someone else who we'll get to is controlling him and other characters. Um, so as well as Vector, you have uh, Kyron, who is uh, Dokido's estranged ex-wife. Uh, she she used to help fix up Cyborgs too, but now she's gone to work for Vector. And she was born in Salem. And she's played by Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, her she is basically being evil because she wants to get back to Salem. Right, because she and Ida were kicked out because their daughter was sick. Yeah. I, that was <laughs> that was more of a question than anything, <laughs> but I think that's what happened. Yeah, I think uh, it was less that they were kicked out. I think they voluntarily left because it. it was the only way to save their daughter was to go down to the, the scrapyard and, you know, try and fix her there because you know what they wanted to do was not allowed in Salem right because the basic premise is that Salem is the last of the floating sky cities yes the only one to survive this Mars attack that happened yep 300 years ago yep when Jim Burton's Mars attack happened (laughs) and then Iron City is the city below where like all of the the people that are like the poor people that support the infrastructure of Salem live and everyone wants to get up to Salem but they're you not allowed. You can do that if you win motorball. <laughs> yep, that's obviously. the only way to get up is to win motorball. It's a bit like having, you know, have you ever heard the the uh, psychological trick that apparently if you build a system that has zero flaws, people will just sort of kill themselves. Whereas if you leave the potential for escape, people will have the hope that they can one day get out. Wow, it's some, that's like, an interesting idea. building system thing, yeah. They should have explored that more in this film, I would say. Yeah. So if they say, like, oh, there's no way up to Salem, like, what's their, why would they participate in this supporting society? Whereas if they think, oh, you can potentially get up to Salem. Because I I wondered if the thing about the champion getting up was actually a lie or not. Like, um, but then I suppose it could well be. It could be. But yeah, I think there would have to be some kind of proof that they did. Uh, (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine Gruishka going up to Salem and being like, (laughs) Hey guys. <laughs> no, I think Ido pretty much confirms that that is true, which I actually thought was lame. I think it would have been more interesting if like you were saying it was all mm, fake. Yeah. But I think he's like, "Oh, I'm from there and I actually know that if you win this sporting event, you get <laughs> to go." But doesn't that just there. mean that eventually yeah. the place is just going to be full of all these angry sports playing cyborgs? <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone blows up so much when they're playing motorball, they there's never actually going to happen, yeah. right? <laughs> um so yeah, anyway, so we've got Vector, we've got Chiron, uh we have Ed Screen playing Zapan, mm-hmm. who has the only Martian sword. And he's like unrelated. This was also confusing. So you have this whole like Zalem, you know, world of like, we're trying to solve that. And then Zapan was like unrelated to that. He's just an angry bounty hunter who gets pissed that Alita is like trying to, you know, get in on yeah. his territory and is rude to him. So this felt very tangential. You've got the ones who basically they, they're not bothered about getting there. They're just living the life that they have, and their life is to be successful bounty hunters down... Yeah, hunter yeah, warriors. Um, <laughs> I liked Ed Screen's character in this. And I, Me too. I, was, I think he's the second best Yeah, and I was, I was a bit <laughs> disappointed that sort of, you know, he just gets shoved out once she's defeated him and got the sword. And I, I felt like either he should have come back more as a bigger villain in it, or actually where I was kind of hoping it was going to go from their kind of first interaction would be that he would carry on being antagonistic but not full on a villain and actually that you might even get a sort of 
an antagonistic, reluctant friendship sort of thing. I think that mm-hmm. would have been a much better direction for that character and and that really that that looked they, there was a fun spark there that i think it was a shame the film didn't go further down and yeah he was obviously just having a hell of a lot of fun with it yeah i think he's great and he like really commits he's got that accent that i was enjoying kind of copy <laughs> while i was <laughs> listening to or watching this film but he but it is weird because like you're saying he's so separate and you sort of think okay he'll get folded in in one way or the other but it's really just like that's a separate thread that she's mm. dealing with. <laughs> separate from her past, separate yeah. from Zalem, separate from I mean, Motorball. Yeah. That's like just the pure Hunter it's, Warrior It's almost as line. if there should have been a link somewhere where it turned out that secretly he was working for Vector as well or something. But no, right. he's completely something. disconnected. Yeah. <laughs> but he was also so invested in like her, yeah. getting her. I mean, <laughs> you would have to think that if there was a sequel that character should be a part of it because he's out there with a vendetta against her and half a face so the fact that he was left alive despite there being no reason to leave him alive suggests they had plans for him in some way Mm. um so yeah so that's three villains there's also gruishka who is (laughs) like the grunt man cyborg criminal who works for uh vector and nova what what we haven't even gotten yeah who we haven't got to yet so who (laughs) did we think what do we think of gruishka aside from the fact that his name is bizarre Hated Grishka. To me, the weakest link. This was my big problem. It's like, either set this up as Grishka is the main, is the big boss for this film with Mahershala Ali set up for future films. Or set this up as like, Grishka is like the first guy you have to defeat and then we're going after Mahershala Ali. Surprise at the end, there's somebody above Mahershala Ali. But it's like, the whole time you're aware that Grishka is like so low on this totem pole, but he's so much of the focus. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, but I already know, I'm already ahead of you that this guy is not important. And she eventually kind of comes to that realization at the end and just like easily defeats him, which is cool. But it's like that needed to happen earlier. Yeah, not when you're in the same room as, as Vector as- and then immediately <laughs> kill Vector as well. Right, right. To me, this was like the big, I didn't find this performance or this character's design to be hugely interesting and we spend a lot of time with him and he <laughs> keeps he keeps i feel like i'm also coming across really negative i didn't dis i didn't hate this movie by any means i just like had a very intellectual yeah i mean experience watching it you're right that it's all stupid like the the thing is it i just think it's also fun I agree. And like to me, Zapan like hits the perfect mix of stupid and fun. Yeah, but yeah. Grishka was just <laughs> too he stupid. does this thing where to escape something, he like punches a hole in the ground <laughs> and then hops into it. <laughs> As he's falling, he yells like, Come give me a Grishka. <laughs> Like multiple times, he's yelling his name as he's falling further and further. <laughs> like, what just happened? And then he also, in the first scene where we meet him, he has three henchmen <laughs> below him, who she's like trying to defeat. <laughs> Which is when we get to the like a lady that's sort of sexy that like climbs up the wall like a cat with her butt in the air. <sighs> So we have, like, that's the first boss, and then we have Grishka, and then we, you know what I mean? And then Jennifer Connelly's around as this, like, false thing, and then we haven't even gotten to Nova yet, and it's just like, yeah. what? Like, I don't have any, and then we also, it's like Hugo and his friends, and yeah. his friends are kind of antagonistic, and this motorball thing, and all these random bounty hunters, and it's like, there's, <laughs> you know, I was really, because I knew we were watching this for the podcast, I was really, really trying to pay attention, probably more so <laughs> than I would if I was just watching, you know, and enjoying 
But if you're actually trying to follow the plot, it's like, what is happening? <laughs> there are so many elements, and every scene just introduces a new element. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I really enjoyed Gorishka's design because he's basically like, it's kind of like, what if a tank had a personality? <laughs> what if a tank well, was angry what at if a you? Tank had That's a voice. Gorishka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if a tank was Rorschach? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he played by Jackie Earl Haley. I don't know if we said that before, too. That's an odd casting choice, isn't it? Because it's like... <laughs> it's a very odd casting put Jackie choice. Earl Haley in something like... I mean, obviously, it's a CG character, so he can look however they want. But if you said, we need somebody to play this big, enormous, hulking, wide-faced CG character, I don't <laughs> think Jackie Earl Haley would be where my mind would go. Not that he does anything <laughs> wrong with the performance, but it's just a bit disconcerting <laughs> it's like all of the others kind of resemble you know how they are in yeah. reality i feel like someone someone cast like bafflingly against type is a staple of these kind of <laughs> so bad they're good movies <laughs> where you have like um what's what's the guy harry osborne in valerian oh yeah uh, dane dehan yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have him playing like the sort of romantic hero and you're like, yeah, is that is that who he plays? I don't <laughs> think that's who he is normally, right? Okay, here's my other like factual questions that maybe you guys can answer. So so I think we're meant to believe that when they say Alita's brain is human, mm-hmm. we're, that's like true, right? That's not like a metaphor, like genuinely she has a human brain. Yes. Okay, so then these other people... Like Japan, 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 and uh, Grishka, they sort of have human faces on cyborg bodies. Are they also like part human, part cyborg, or are they full cyborg and they've just like bought a face from the Hall of Faces from Game of Thrones and they like put it on? <laughs> to make a semantic point, to be a cyborg, you have to have at least some organic element. That's um, true. So, yeah. a, so a cyborg always has at least some, even if it's just some the human. brain. And I I got the impression that yeah for like with Alita it's like her whole head is human or is human well organic because yeah. you know she's from Mars rather than Earth but yeah human whatever but with some of the others their bodies were completely robotic and it was just their brain I thought with uh, um, Ed Scrain's character that you know it, it it's still their real skin face but then when they get like chopped and stuff mm-hmm. it's always the blue blood and that so. Yes. I think I think it's a mixture, and I think it's whatever suits the particular character that they've gone with. So uh, it's differing kind of levels and degrees, which again is just something that made me think of the various uh, characters, and particularly the antagonist characters in Deus Ex, uh, because that's what they're like. It's like you know, um, you play a character who has been so badly um, sort of damaged in a in in an incident that you know he's kind of a lot of his kind of limbs and stuff have been completely replaced. But then there's other characters where it is just their head on a completely robotic body. There are others who've just Mm -hmm. got like a robotic arm and that sort of thing. So it's just, yeah. Yeah. I did think that was a cool part of the general design and world building of Iron City was that most people or a, a good chunk of people had, you know, limbs were missing or replaced by robotic limbs. Like that was very normalized in the world, which tended to look cool. Like there's just like a scene of a guy playing guitar with his, like robotic cans. Um, but then another thing I found confusing. So there's bounty hunters or hunter warriors, as mm-hmm. they're called, that you have to like sign up to be. And then there's also like Garish is kind of like a serial killer. But both of those sets of people would have the like fully robotic bodies with just the cyborg heads. And I kept confusing which one was which. Like it felt to me like 
Maybe it's just because I'm used to Star Trek, so I want all the things <laughs> yeah. to be very distinct. <laughs> but the idea that you could look the same but be in different categories was like too confusing for me to handle. I mean, it's a job, isn't it? So, like, so the so the hunter warriors. Yeah, you would think only you know the hunter warriors would only be cyborgs, and it's like, well, actually, they're mostly cyborgs because it kind of helps to be one because it makes it, it makes the job easier. But Edo yeah. is a hunter warrior, and he's not. He, he but it's yeah, he, he just has his rocket yeah. hammer. So I think the point is, it's something that you sign up for, and you're most likely to be one to be a cyborg if you're one. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of intentional comedy that works, and I couldn't quite figure out if Ido being a hunter-warrior was intentional comedy or not, because I was like, how is Christoph Waltz equal to these, like, crazy sites? He's just a guy, yeah. like, a pretty, like, a you know, an older guy running around with a hammer, and he's, like, <laughs> supposed to be equal to these robot people? I also found that very confusing. Yeah, I mean, in the, again, in the manga, this is something that kind of... It's a bit more obvious that he's uh, he's sneakier and smarter than the cyborgs who just are overconfident because they're cyborgs. It doesn't really come across in this. No, it felt very. I was like, "What? Why is this? Why are you doing this? This is yeah. not a good job for you." <laughs> like where he fights three cyborgs at once, and you're like, "How is he even lifting that hammer?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't really work because he's worthy, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I what 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 do you guys think of Edo? Because I did. I mean, maybe it's just because it was Christoph Waltz and he's 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 doing a he's giving a very likable performance. But I I liked him even though he's really weird. Um, I mean, he's definitely got some unresolved issues. <laughs> <laughs> like he he would benefit from therapy, but I guess they don't have therapy, <laughs> not anymore. Um, I think it's a yeah, like you say, it's a likable performance, and I think that goes a long way to making the character seem less insane than he probably <laughs> is on the page. <laughs> I think there were a lot of things in this movie that while I was watching it, like while I was watching this movie, other than being confused by some of the world building, I wasn't like, well, it's ever one scene that we can get to, but for the most part, I was not like super creeped out or like even that like critical of it. But when I go back and think about it now, I'm like, yeah, it is weird that he like found this girl named him after her daughter, his daughter, his dead daughter, put him in her body. Like the first thing, like while she's laying there, he's like, oh, my beautiful angel, what are you dreaming of? <laughs> like, whoa, this is creepy. And when she wakes up and comes downstairs, his first thing is not like, oh, hi, you know, I'm Dr. Ido. Like, I found you. I woke you up. Like, I'm sure you're confused. Here's what's going on. He just like starts talking to her like they're friends. And like five minutes in, she's like, am I supposed to know you yeah. by the way? I'm like, that's just a weird way to go about that, you know, conversation. Yeah. And I don't think I ever quite bought into their father-daughter. Like, the film kind of sets up this interesting thing where I think it's sort of critiquing his, like, paternalistic attitude. And it's she's sort of branching out. And she's like, I am going to become a hunter-warrior. Like, you can't control me. Which is an interesting thread. Mm -hmm. And then it just sort of, like, walked it back. And it's like, oh, as soon as she got injured, she was, like, you know, snuggling up to him again. And, and they were, like, the perfect father-daughter thing. So it's like, I think it was aware of what it was doing. And it was exploring it a little bit but then it just sort of had to shortcut that and get to the the scene where she calls him dad and like <laughs> that happened a little too quickly for me yeah i feel like this is one of the things where like that that thread would have made more sense over a much longer narrative but when they have to cram it into a yeah. movie you're just like yeah we're here already it doesn't feel like we're here um and that's that's a problem you get in a lot of adaptations i think um and it was the same with it was like Especially with both, we both had to invest in the in the Edo relationship and the Hugo relationship so quickly. Mm -hmm. It was like a lot to ask from us. And I think either of them, if more fleshed out, 
could have been really compelling, but they both felt like, you know, shortchanged a little bit. And so it was hard to, and it was sort of like the conflict of like, oh, is she gonna, you know, go with one or the over the other or forge her own path? And it sort of tried to nod to all of the possibilities without ever really fully committing to any one of them, I think. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm trying to think of the, again, like in the, in the anime, she's a lot more sort of disobedient in he's you know warning her off off being a hunter warrior and she's like well i'm going to do it anyway and they never really reconcile that in fact it's interesting in the in the manga just sort of after i can't remember how many volumes it is but after a pretty long stretch she's just sort of written out and he just never turns up again like she just she completely grows beyond having a relationship with him she's just like yeah I'm, i'm off now and like he just fades away and just disappears. I mean, that's the, that, there. There's your sort of you know metaphor about him being the father, isn't isn't it? And that because that sort of ties to the bit that I think I think I had read descriptions of the moment when she switches into the new body. Um, <laughs> and actually, just the, the actual <laughs> creepiest bit of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Um, but actually, just 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 before we get to that, just the thing you said about kind of him and the and the sort of um, battling against her becoming a hunter warrior. I think it's quite funny that sort of you know you have this thing where she wants to wear the berserker body, and he's like, "No, I'm not going to put you in that." And obviously, she can't be put in it without him. So you're like, okay, so there's obviously going to be this conflict, and they're probably going to have to have this kind of debate and argument about it. And then her body gets destroyed, so he just has to go. Yeah, all right, I'll put you in it anyway. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think that that scene. Um, where you know she takes you know she takes the new body and then the nanotechnology rewrites it based on her perceptions of age and it obviously ages her up to be older than she's been perceived to be in the other form um in isolation um it is it is weird it's it's uh, that's that's the point where it it feels odd um i mean I think- specifically what's weird about the the thing is the body reconfigures itself to have larger breasts, yeah, basically. And the doctor's assistant woman looks and goes, ah, "I think she's a little older than you thought." Yeah. And you're like, "Excuse yeah. me, what? What a line!" I like yeah. gasped at that line. I could not handle that. And it's not even just that it's matching her age. He says that like it's matching her idealized image of herself mm-hmm. or like her sense of self. So it's like, oh, this whole time her sense of self was like that. <laughs> in addition to her eyes, which we should also talk about, <laughs> she has like the proportions of a. Barbie doll with like a tiny waist, big boobs, and we're going to explicitly like have the one woman in the scene comment on the boobs in a like cheerful way. <laughs> but where, where I think you can sort of make a justification for it, uh, or at least I, I think I can see what it's trying to do, is that what that moment kind of also marks because it it, it comes back to what you were just saying then about in in the comic sort of moving away from essentially outgrowing her father in inverted commas and it is sort of that's that is kind of the point of her sort of i mean you know kind of physically in the sense of the way it does it but growing up and sort of because mm-hmm. up to that point she's been kind of naive she's not like remembered her past and um you know has very much had that kind of childlike role and that relationship with him and that's the moment where essentially essentially she's you know she's moving out you know she's sort <laughs> of she's she's going on to her adult life so you can sort of read the line about you know it it her perception of self as being it's her perception of self now because she's effectively grown up and is leaving home and 
so I can I can see it metaphorically, and I think it kind of works. It's just really uncomfortable it's the execution, in right? the execution of it. Yeah, <laughs> like what you've what you've said totally makes sense. The problem is in the film, it's like <laughs> look at yeah. this, and you're like, mm, okay, no, and it feels like it's deliberately appealing to the kind of people on the internet who decided to make this film a war with Captain yeah. Marvel. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that there... It's like, okay, if you want to have uh, this metaphor about a cyborg like going through puberty or having a sexual awakening or something, that's... Like, you can do that, but that's not really what... They don't really spend a lot of time exploring that, so it's just sort of like, ooh, she got boobs, and yeah. now from now on she wears super tight <laughs> shirts and, like, look at her boobs. Mm. And then it's like her next scene... You know, her scene is like... It's like the scene is her dad being like, ooh, you got boobs. And the nurse is like, ooh, you got boobs. And then she meets her boyfriend. And her boyfriend's like, wow, your boobs are incredible. And it's like, what is happening? Like, this is... And especially just like when you are going through puberty, literally the last thing you want is everyone commenting like, oh, it's like you're getting boobs. Or, oh, you're getting armpit hair. It's like, that's the nightmare. But here's sort of presented as like, oh, a wonderful thing that happened. Yeah, congratulations. And I could not imagine that, ner- like, that nurse's reaction to just be like, oh, looks like she's older than we thought. Like, I co- genuinely cannot imagine a woman saying that. Like, that is such a weird re- way to react to that. Right, especially because they already know. They already know she's 300 years, years old, right? Right, right. Like, those are not the breasts of a 300-year-old person. <laughs> True. <laughs> Let's be fair. And it doesn't even feel like, you know... Th- Again, the metaphor is like, oh, he he put this person, he met this person, and he like put her into this childish position that she has to break out of. But it's like she also could have done that in this in this like the suit as she found it or the body, the shell was like androgynous, like more of a male figure. Like you could have that metaphor, mm-hmm. and she's in that body. You know what I mean? Where she's rejecting like traditional human forms, but conveniently yeah. the way that they have it expressed, which the get out of jail free card is like, oh, this is how she sees herself is the conventional, you know, male gazy figure, which is like, okay, this is just very convenient all around for what you're trying to do. I was about I was about to say, like, this feels like a scene that could have done with some input from an actual Which woman. and I think that there was a woman that co wrote the script. So it's not like it was without that, but it definitely felt very uncomfortable to watch, even regardless yeah. of that. Yeah. I mean interestingly, the the screenwriter who worked on it was um the same person who worked on uh terminator genesis which has similarly bad gender yeah, which i weirdly like so <laughs> don't know how to <laughs> rectify that with everything i've said so far <laughs> that it was uh, uh i'm gonna try and pronounce a name because we should mention it but it's uh later calagridis calagridis yes, i think that's right she's greek mm-hmm. greek of course and has worked on a surprising amount of things like uh, was attached to X-Men at one point and the Birds of Prey TV show and Bionic Woman. Oh, and Altered Carbon, which is genre relevant here as oh, well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the credited screenwriters are her and James Cameron, but then it also sounds like Robert Rodriguez did a lot in the script. It's always hard to tell with in terms yes. of who gets the credit and who actually, you know, is putting yeah, the work of the in WGA. Yeah, for things. But yeah. that's that's how it breaks down there. Anyway, boob scene, I thought super... That was the one time during the movie where I was like actively skeeved out and everything else was more like, Oh, thinking about it later, this was weird. That was the one thing where while I was watching it, I was like, Oh my God, what's happening? Why is this scene occurring? I think definitely for me, that was the only time in the film where I was like, uh, this looks like the movie I was worried Mm -hmm. it might be. Okay. While we're on these weird little issues and maybe this is me being, being, we should definitely talk about the eyes, but this isn't even like 
to me, this it was very noticeable that this movie killed a lot of black characters. They also killed a lot of white characters, to be fair. But there, it started, there's a scene where we just see a random woman getting murdered. And it's like really the first time we've seen someone die. And it's a black woman, which I feel like is such mm. a trope in horror movies that the black person dies first, which is why I noticed yeah. it. And then Hugo's friend, who's black, uh, gets cut in half. And then Mahershala Ali dies at the end. And the only other black character that does live is the nurse. And then the w- the way they treat the nurse is also really weird because she's in a lot of it. And she has a- she's in a lot of the movie. She's always around pretty much when Ido's around. And she has about three lines. <laughs> and I was like, did they? Yeah, she's not she's not doing a lot, is she? Did they do like reshoots and add this woman in because they realized the like racial politics of this? Like the way she's treated, <laughs> there's, a- there's a part where she's like in the locker room prepping alita before the motorball and she literally says nothing and she just like waves at her silently and i was like was there was this a weird Mm. contract thing where they had to pay this woman for each line like she's treated (laughs) so strangely and her one line her one big line is about the boobs which is also why it stood out and and like i said to be fair a lot of white characters die including hugo including like main characters so i don't want to be like too nitpicky but it was just something that stood out i think i think you're right there's a (laughs) there are a lot of black characters who particularly because that first one that's just like an anonymous woman we don't know it just really stood out to me because because of that trope of black people dying first so i don't know it was just whatever (laughs) mahershala ali has like a decent role in it so it's not like it you know is i mean it kind of is underutilizing him but it's ostensibly giving some representation there i don't know it's just something that stood out to me while i was watching it yeah i mean the there's not a huge amount we can say to mitigate that, is there? Because, like, the, you know, the statistics don't yeah. lie. Is it unconscious bias? It doesn't feel like conscious bias. But it feels like something that they could have looked at and gone, again, if there had been a black person working up higher up in the production, they might have gone, hey, guys, think about how yeah, this Yeah, even just switching out that first death, I think, would have been fine. It was that one that really felt the most noticeable to me. Because it is just a random extra. It could have been anybody. Hmm. Indeed. I don't know. Anyway, should we talk about more things that I, I feel like I've been so negative? I really liked, I really <laughs> liked um, the way Alita moved in battle. I thought it was really, really cool and like something I had never. Oh, seen this before. is good because we get we get to say my favorite thing about Go the film. For it. We get to say she practices Panzerkunst, <laughs> <laughs> the martial art. I'm looking. I'm trying to buy a Panzerkunst T-shirt because I think it's just the coolest martial art name you can it imagine. It is a good name. <laughs> I think it's because it's German in a film where, like, nothing else is German. (laughs) It's very, it's almost like she's a ballet dancer the way she moves. And I think the advantage of Mm -hmm. having her be CG is that her limbs move in a way that human limbs don't move. And she can do things where she, like, she'll a lot of times, like, throw something up and then kick it or kick multiple things. And her limbs are just moving in such interesting ways. And she's very, very graceful. And I found all of that super compelling to watch. And she's like, you know diving around Garishka's like weird tentacle arm things. And that was all really, really mm-hmm. cool. Uh, do you know, the thing they don't mention, I don't think they mention it about Panzerkunst in this film, is that it's designed to be a zero gravity martial art. Oh, oh there is that little brief uh, flashback yeah. where they're fighting in, in right, space, yeah. Like floating around in that container thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a cyborg martial art designed for zero gravity. And, you know, the idea is that humans can't do it because of the movements it requires. Mm-hmm. Would have been nice to have had that in the film. It's just a little bit of world building from the manga. You know, they'd have got to it in the sequel. (laughs) I just, I mean, it really, by far the least developed strand is the stuff with her background because they put in these flashbacks that make it seem like they're building up to pay off 
and they just don't. They're just they're just <laughs> glimpses of her past. That's all. Um, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's very strange. And if Michelle Rodriguez is playing, I think she was yeah. uncredited playing the like commander. Yeah, yeah, I, I expected yeah. some kind of resolution or payoff. Whether it was something that happens there is well, I guess there is a link to the present because there's the whole thing about climbing up the chain. But like all that really does, all that scene, that flashback really does is just shows you that there are these rings things and they're really dangerous. So that when one comes along later, you know what it's gonna do. But but you know, yeah, there's no... I feel like there were better ways to to convey that information. Yeah, it, I I felt like you know she was gonna have l- remember and learn something that would mm-hmm. be crucial to how she ultimately triumphs, or that she would remember something that had some sense of you know that was lacking closure, and then something that she does in the present day gives closure to something that happened in the past. But. Um, you know, it's just yeah, it's just kind of half-formed backstory stuff. Which, as I say, kind of when I when I went online and kind of read around this a bit more and got a bit more of a sense of what was <laughs> supposed to have gone on with this war and that kind of thing, I was like, oh, okay, that you know that that makes sense. It just should have made it into the film a bit more. Yeah, or if you are, if they want to save that for a sequel, then just save it all for a sequel. I don't quite mm. get this under this like sense that a lot of these franchises have of like you need to thread. Like, to me, the ultimate example is that, like, cave scene in Age of Ultron, where it's like, oh, we need to have Thor going into a cave. And it's like, who is that for? If you're a super Marvel fan, you already know Infinity (laughs) Stones are coming. If you aren't a super Marvel fan, it doesn't mean anything to you. So there's really no one that it's serving. And Mm. so it's either, Mm -hmm. like, put it in the film and make it matter, or just save it for the sequel. I don't think having these little payoffs are as, you know, like, helpful or important as these studios think they are. Yeah. So either like save Michelle Rodriguez for the sequel or make her matter in this one, but don't like having her be in this one, but not matter. is like the worst of all options. <laughs> the worst of all worlds. Although it was pretty much the only time Alita talked to another woman. So I did appreciate that there yeah. was a little bit of that at least. Yeah. I, should, I guess she spoke to Jennifer Courtney yeah, very yeah, briefly. Three lines maybe, but sure. <laughs> mostly, mostly about her dead boyfriend, <laughs> her soon to be dead boyfriend. Um, we should talk about the eyes. We haven't talked about the eyes yet. <laughs> Who was upset by the eyes? I could not get past the eyes. Yeah, and same. I, th- I don't even think my issue with them necessarily is that they've made that stylistic decision because I do understand why they've kind of done it. But firstly, I mean, it doesn't serve the the narrative and the film at all. It only serves being able to go look, we've got a, a realistic-looking character that's styled after a, a manga-style character. My issue with it is that in order to do it, they kind of have to pretty much fully CGI her face. And all of the other... Like, Caroline, you mentioned earlier about how well-done kind of all this, the CGI characters mm-hmm. and stuff are. And every time you've got a character like Ed Scrain's character or like uh, Jackie Earl Haley, where it's their whole face... But put on a, you know, a cybernetic body, it works fine. I mean, that kind of stuff. All you know, when you've had to morph, though, you, you really get those problems with like kind of mouth movements and stuff. But they haven't generally had to morph them; they've just kind of placed them on. So, so that stuff works with her face. They can't place it on. They've had to do that kind of morphing, and so she looks like a computer-generated character. And I think she looks 
too much like a computer-generated character. Another thing that I said to James um, um, on on WhatsApp was that the main thing I was thinking of was the, that Final Fantasy movie, um, Final Fantasy: oh, The Spirits yeah. Within. It reminded me of what that character looked like. Where it, you know it's that uncanny valley thing of she was all you know at the time everyone was like wow this character is incredibly realistic and actually you know now you can kind of look back and and see the ways in which it's not and it's it just yeah i think and i I think there are times particularly earlier in the film when it's not so much about the action side of the performance i think it hampers her getting across the performance of the character i I just 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 so distracting it's just really really distracting i mean for me for me, it, I didn't find it that distracting, to be honest. What I did find strange was that she was the only character who looked like that. Mm. Because in, like, obviously in the anime, that's a, a stylistic element that they've copied directly, yeah. but it, it applies to every yeah, character. So like, every character is drawn in that style. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a very strange choice to have it. And I guess, you know, it creates this sort of distance. It makes it obvious that she's not human, blah, 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 blah. I don't think it serves the character to have just her look different compared to everyone else. Like as much as I enjoyed her looking super accurate, which she did, like I'm I'm always there for it, but let's do that to everyone if we're going to do it. I think for the most part I got used to it as it went along. And maybe if this movie mm-hmm. existed in like no context of the world, it wouldn't bother me so much, but I think like this is okay, this is like genuine little soapbox I'm gonna get on for a second. But I think, you know, there's this big eyed tradition, certainly in anime, and I think in Disney princesses a lot, especially the more recent <laughs> ones where their eyes are like the size of their head. It doesn't really bother <laughs> me as much in animation, because I think I'm just used to, you know, animation not being real. But what I have noticed is on a lot of like insta insta stories and photo editing things they have these built-in features that will just make your eyes slightly bigger and sometimes it's like really obvious Mm. and noticeable but i actually think people start have started doing it on their photos and filters like very very subtly and i genuinely think that this is going to give like a whole generation of young people but probably particularly young women like really bad body dysmorphia for like what your eyes are supposed to look like and so I couldn't stop thinking about that while watching this movie. Like, it's like, we're just presenting this woman who is a real woman. Like you can, you know, she's not fully a cartoon like Elsa. She's a person and she has these weird eyes and we're like totally morphing the sense of what is normal. And then, you know, I open up Instagram and like people I follow are doing that too. And it's just starting to freak me out. And everyone's eyes are beautiful the way they are. <laughs> we don't need to change our our <laughs> eyes. I think it's okay for a stylized cartoon, but it makes me uncomfortable bringing it into the real world specifically because I think it can impact like beauty standards in a weird and harmful way, which again is not really this movie's fault in a vacuum, but like the movie doesn't exist in a vacuum. So that's my soapbox done about the big eyes. <laughs> No, I think that's fair. Like it, you know, you get these, the sense that they're sort of, even, even in films where actors aren't, you know, explicitly being CGI, they're actually being run through like de-aging mm-hmm. filters and, and having their skin smoothed out. And like, you know, you've got 4K video, but you can't see any pores because they've been digitally removed. And it's like, even things, pe- things that look like people don't accurately reflect what people look like yeah. anymore. Like it was always going to be tough to get the body of Hugh Jackman for any man. You cannot have the skin of (laughs) any actor now because it's like, it's not real skin. Like it's impossible. So it, yeah, I think you're right. It's like, it's a, 
it's a worrying trend and it is going to screw people up and it's something we're going to have to keep an eye on especially as parents yeah. like it's going to be tough and things like and it doesn't bother me when they like cgi her movements to be unrealistic because that's clearly you know it's like part of the story it's it's not it's not mm-hmm. just like oh this is beautiful it's like oh this is a cool style like the eyes thing is just such an aesthetic choice alone that doesn't like you said doesn't really mm-hmm. add anything so it's yeah. just i don't know it's a weird it's a weird thing to do. And like all credit to Rosa for being able to act as well as she does through all that. I think maybe Seb said that earlier that just like the amount, it's incredible how much her performance is able to come through all those layers. So I definitely can't fault her for that, but <laughs> I, I hope that this does not become a trend of the big eyed human women. Yeah. It probably, if, if it had just been every character, I'd have been yeah. much happier with it. I yeah. Think. yeah. Herschel Ali with just giant eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did he even take his sunglasses off? Like, yeah, because he had to once? show us when he was blue for. Oh, we yeah. never talked about Nova uh, yeah, either. Our oh, final, yeah, we missed our him final villain. villain rundown. Who you tweeted about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a big surprise in in the identity of Nova. So let's talk about him yeah. briefly, like, because he he's controlling all of the other characters. It turns out, and Nova's the guy running Zalem, and he's taken an interest in Alita, but he also mainly doesn't want her to get there so he's doing everything he can like killing people throwing assassins at her or whatever and he can just kind of randomly invade the body and brain of anyone yeah he he can brain hack brain hack other people and you know become the puppet master for them he does it to gruishka he does it to nova uh, does it to vector is it the case that he can he can only do that if they've got that thing on their head that shows that they're a resident because edo no. took his out or took his off i was confused what the rules were as to who he could do it to as well because like yeah. why couldn't he just do it to alita and like make her come to him or whatever he can do it to anyone there's a specific chip in cyborg brains that he can do it to people who have yeah. um but vector's not a so, cyborg and uh thingy no vector's vector's got a cyber brain i'm sure was he I mean, I'm mixing up my franchises because cyber brains are ghost in the shell, but <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure Vector has that chip in his head. Mm. Like, you don't have to be a cyborg, you just have to have that one right. chip. Sure. Which I guess makes you a cyborg, but yeah, it's nothing It's nothing to do with the crystal in your forehead. That just tells you that you were born in Salem. Right. But then at the end... Gurishka was definitely not born in Salem. At the end, we get our big Nova actor reveal. <laughs> Nova reveal, yeah. And Caroline, do you want to announce who he's played he's by? He's played by the one and only Ed Norton. And uh, like literally like the second to last shot of the film is just you kind of you really don't see Nova much at all. But he's sort of like he kind of looks like Colonel Sanders from KFC, like just white hair and like glasses. And then he takes the glasses off and it's Edward Norton. And I watched I was watching this movie alone and I like I was so mad I was watching it alone because I had such a I was like, I need to talk to someone about this absolutely bananas reveal. It's just one of those things where it's like, oh, we're setting him up for the next film. I got yeah. especially excited because I forgot that Jennifer Connelly was not the love interest in Ed norton hulk 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 but she was love interest in eric Bana hulk so i briefly was like oh my god they're reunited and then i remembered it was different yeah, it, kind, it kind of feels like jennifer connelly should have been like jennifer connelly would make more sense as yeah. a betty ross for ed, norton for ed norton than Liv tyler did Liv tyler i could see for mark <laughs> ruffalo it's like yeah. it's like they're, they're, they're one betty ross behind each yeah. time <laughs> yeah i had no i had been there were certain things i knew going into this movie like i had heard that there's like a fake out that Christoph Waltz is playing a villain, but he's actually a nice guy. But I had not heard about this Ed Norton thing, so I was just so shocked <laughs> that it happened. And that was that. And then <laughs> that was the end of the movie, so. <laughs> Did you... Because, you, obviously, I mean, you see him 
um, a kind of long shot of him in that flashback where he's obviously not recognisable at all. But before the final, final shot, you have got that shot of him where it shows him launching the death wheel thing. Did, but he's got the glasses on. Did you recognise him then or did you no. only recognise him when he Only took the when he took off? the glasses off. Did you recognise him? <laughs> I'd already seen that it was Honestly, him. the first time, the first time I didn't recognize him at all. I was just like, okay, I guess that's some guy. I mean, he is weird. They did something weird to his skin too. Like he did not quite look like himself. <laughs> yeah. And his hair, his hair is very mm. not Edmonton. Yeah. I'd, I'd already read that he was in it. So the first time, that first time with the glasses on, I did recognize him because I knew to look for Ed Norton. But that's why I'm curious as to if you didn't know to look for Ed Norton, was it recognizable enough that you would go, oh, that's Ed Norton? But No, or, not at all. You know, and maybe, yeah, yeah maybe a, a true Ed Nor- or Norton stan would have, but I did not recognize until I took the glasses <laughs> off and I was really just shocked. Like this movie, it gives you, you know, you get, you get your money's worth with this movie. It gives you something every second to <laughs> just be stunned by so i cannot fault it for that <laughs> i mean i did it's something i did kind of allude to at the start but I, I did want to get in before before we finish which is um something i really was impressed by generally was the the look and feel and particularly of like backgrounds and and scenes and scenarios um and there were t- the two things in particular aside from the fact that they did all just look really big and nice and well thought out firstly is the fact that you get a lot of different settings in the film um that all that you know a lot of them look quite different from one another you know there isn't just kind of one look to everything kind of section by section <laughs> of the film there are a, there's a lot of different feels and as it never felt like they were kind of scrimping on putting work into that and kind of tied to that really impressed by the use of color in a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. just because Agreed. there was some like it didn't have this kind of horrible blue or orange wash that you see in so many modern blockbusters um every every one of those distinct scenarios had you know there's a good chunk of the film that takes place at night but there's also a lot that doesn't and there's a lot of distinct color palettes from the kind of the daytime kind of <laughs> you you definitely need to watch uh valerian <laughs> well yeah i know i know i know there's a lot of color in that um, but you know i'm not saying that a lot of color is necessarily a good thing i'm, I'm saying varied palettes <laughs> and nice bright complementary palettes and that's what this film has yes but you go from things like the kind of the you know the the sandy orangey kind of early daytime junk villagey kind of stuff the bit where she goes underwater um you know the the nighttime stuff the bar the motorball arena it's all got different looks and feels but nothing ever felt muddled everything felt very crisp and clear and it kind of ties again to Mm -hmm. what i was saying earlier about you know big the big action stuff always had a nice kind of clarity to it um and and as i say you know that's that a lot of that to me felt like the kind of the through line from rodriguez's um the child-friendly action stuff that he does and actually i mean even actually you you know you look at we talked about it sin city like he he is very good at composing scenes i think um and yeah you know just visually impressive and i say but yeah not just impressive but actually pleasant as well well and i think that really adds to the like sense of optimism that you were talking about at the beginning Mm. like the you know, we are used to seeing these like dystopian worlds, like the Blade Runner desaturated. And this was like a dystopian world, but it's very <laughs> colorful. And that does add to, there is like a niceness about it. Like, you know, Ido is like, he's helping people out and paying, you know, getting paid in oranges. And 
<laughs> that is sort of like creating a very unique tone for it, I think. And that sort of establishes Iron City as a unique, you know, world within this sort of genre of dystopian things. I do think it sometimes crosses over too far into the like motorball scrimmage game that does feel like it's out of hook or something. Mm-hmm. Like it can sometimes go too far <laughs> in that direction. But then it's also cool because it, it sort of like has um, Alita's the whole movie sort of has like a noir tone, but it's like a colorful, oversaturated noir. And that's something that I feel like I haven't seen a lot. So I appreciated that. Mm. It, it is sort of interesting when they go to the lake and they find the crash ship. Like the the sort of idyllic nature of that scene. You're like, what, why do you want to go to Salem? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you're living in a virtual paradise down here. What, like, what's the problem? Yeah. Like, what's so good up there? That was true. I also thought... I mean, I kind of thought she was going to go to Zalem. I, it is interesting that we never really see what Zalem is. And that's not actually a flaw, but it is sort of like, is this actually a paradise or is this like a false paradise? Again, things that would yeah, be cool quite. to see a sequel explore, but when there's no guarantee there will be a sequel, it's like... I think at this point we can pretty much guarantee there will be no sequel. Yeah. Although there is a lot of love for this movie. Yeah, I mean, it didn't do great business and it's been eaten up by Disney yeah. now. So the question is, will Disney care enough? And I don't think yeah. they will. You know, they've got bigger fish to fry. I did. I, yeah, it's it's weird now seeing the Fox logo on the start of a recent film feels ominous because it's like, yeah. oh, if Disney controlled the distribution. <laughs> I did like how they did the, um, they did that thing where they changed it to the 26th century. Yeah. They like made a new logo <laughs> for it. That was very cute. At the beginning, I was charmed by that. I liked the the uh, arbitrariness uh, of the date at the start because, you know, when you get films set X number of years in the future, they almost always end in the same number as the year that the film was made. And obviously... The year that the film, or the year that the film is released. So if you go to see it in the cinema, you're like, "Wow, this is exactly 300 years in the future, or whatever." But then if you're watching it at any point other than the year it comes out, that year is completely irrelevant. So that year might as well be completely irrelevant the first time you see it as well. True. <laughs> <laughs> this one is set in 2563. I wrote it down in my notes. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. just that that number flashed up, and I was like, "That's meaningless." <laughs> that, yeah, that could be any four digits for the setting of this film. <laughs> okay, and in terms of other random thoughts, so at first I was mad because we have Christoph Waltz and Jennifer Connelly as a formerly married couple, and I looked up their ages, and there's a 14 year. He's 14 years older than her, which is sort of like a trend in mm-hmm. Hollywood to just casually cast people yeah. if they're the same age. But twist. Then I looked up the Rosa, who plays Alita, is 34, and her love interest is 22. So there's a 12-year age gap. She's 12 years older than him. And granted, she's playing nice. a CGI teenager, but I will give Alita <laughs> credit for having equal age gaps in both directions, even yeah. if one is less acknowledged than... Well, they're both not acknowledged, but one is like papered yeah. over with CGI, but... Overall, we reach equilibrium. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No one so, here is Leonardo DiCaprio, put it yeah. <laughs> The other scene I thought was so cool is when she's fighting Garishka in the underground thing and she like gets cut apart and then she's fighting as just like a torso with one arm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, kudos to, I have never seen anything like this. Like kudos to this movie for being insanely original and like what a cool <laughs> idea that you're literally fighting as a one arm torso and you can still get the advantage. Like very, I was very into that. It's got to work out what the what the movements would be, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's sort of you know there there isn't really an existing frame of reference for that. So, yeah. 
Yeah, very There's not cool. an existing bit of animation you can fall back on and right. <laughs> recycle. <laughs> Maybe thing out of uh, Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah, it did kind of have that feeling a little bit. But then it, and that sort of added to that weird, like, kind of comedy, kind of drama, but I think in a really successful way. Absolutely. Oh, and I like the scene where she was on, she showed off her new body and she, like, was on one finger with it. Again, yeah. it was like that ballet <laughs> thing. But I was like, oh, yep. this is beautiful. Like, I could watch this for hours. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> I like when she's uh, shadow boxing or reflection yeah. boxing, rather. Yeah. Good yeah, stuff. Good, good action. Yeah. Very good action. I think strong all the way through um okay there's actually there's one last thing that i unless either of you got anything you else you want to check in no i think we covered it all oh how was her brain alive for 300 years if he says that she needs food to to he was like you need food for your brain but i was like but it's been sitting in a junkyard for 300 Good years question can a human brain survive for 300 years even supported in a cyborg head Similarly, they sever good Hugo's question. head and he's like, oh, she did such a good job. He suffered no brain damage. How could they tell? <laughs> Not really a complaint, just something that I picked up on. Yeah, I mean, he does immediately try and climb up to a Sky City, so maybe <laughs> it wasn't that successful. <laughs> okay, so the, the thing, the question, the last question I want to leave us with about this film is, why was it so popular with the Fash? Because they love this film to the exclusion of like any discourse that it might be bad or that specifically that Captain Marvel might well, be Well, that's the, th- I don't think it's anything to do with this film in much the same way as their hatred of Captain Marvel isn't actually anything to do with anything that actually happens in that film. Yeah. I think lo- looking at the, the discourse around it, it seems to me that it's just basically, it happened to be a female-led action film that came out around a similar time whose star didn't make comments in interviews about equality (laughs) and feminism so um yeah i think that's the because yeah like that that was a bit of a concern for me going in it was sort of well if they've really latched onto this why is that but there's nothing about this film that makes me think that the reason that you know that there's a reason why they would like it that makes me uncomfortable liking it yeah i think i think you're probably right in that what they latch onto was that it is sort of i think its existence has a sort of feminist tilt to it but it's apolitical in in its story and characters like there's not a scene in here where they try and in any way raise women up specifically it's just the film mm-hmm. happens to star a woman mm. i mean i think the most telling thing is that apparently one one of the most kind of vocal people as part of that whole campaign uh, was jack posoviec and before he started encouraging people to go and see alita he had apparently tweeted but deleted that he found it really boring and <laughs> nearly fell asleep in it so that should tell you everything <laughs> yeah. yeah and in case people don't know what we're, we're talking about this was like it wasn't even when alita came out it was when captain marvel came out which was like a month later there was this campaign to try to get people to see alita so that that like essentially the box office on the day that captain marvel opened would be low for captain marvel but super high for alita mm. and this was like the protest of pro alita anti-captain marvel i agree it was separate from what either of these movies are trying to do and in fact i think both of these movies are similar in that they largely surround their female protagonists with men like i actually do think Mm -hmm. captain marvel does the same thing you get a little bit more with monica but um 
no, Maria. Which one's the mom? Maria is the mom. Maria, yeah. Um, and I guess Monica. But I, I think it, they're pretty similar in that they're actually both mostly about women navigating memory loss surrounded by men. And I do think it was pretty arbitrary that Alita was the lifted up. Yeah, <laughs> neither of them is uh, neither of them is book smart. <laughs> yeah, um, agreed. I, I, so I, yeah, I do think it was kind of an arbitrary thing that's separate from the politics of the film. And the politics of the film are generally like anti-evil rich people pro diverse poor people which is certainly not in line with yeah. you know, the other policies that these people are claiming to support so i think it was Quite. ultimately a lot of nothing as proven by the fact that the attempt to lift up the box office did not succeed mm. i mean if anything that association would probably have harmed have done this film's box office more harm than good i mean yeah. I, I, I even in that direction the impact's probably negligible but if it had any impact whatsoever it might have put off a few people who might have thought of going to see it who would have gone <laughs> yeah. if these guys are telling me to go i'm, I'm not gonna go yeah uh, but don't listen to those people i do think as mess as messy as i ultimately think this movie is i think it's worth seeing just because it's like mm. bonkers and it's always fun <laughs> to watch a bonkers movie that then you can have such a conversation about yeah, that's the thing, right? It's it's interesting. And I will forgive any amount of, like, you know, messiness if something is trying something new and doing it in an interesting way. And I think this is this film is definitely doing both of those things. Yeah, agreed. I mean, as far as CGI character-driven James Cameron projects go, I would take it over Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, culture does not necessarily agree with you <laughs> although you know the avatar sequels haven't come out yet so yeah. who knows maybe they need a crossover <laughs> alita meets one of the characters from avatar that no one remembers the name of i haven't seen avatar so i can't really criticize <laughs> i have not seen it in so long that i feel like i basically haven't seen it i was going to read the book first but then i learned there was no book version of avatar <laughs> Okay, I think I think we've hit every interesting point on that film. We covered a lot. Yes. What next, Mr. Host? Yeah. So, I mean, we don't really do recommendations. If you're gonna do, if you're gonna read anything, you know, there's a perfectly good manga out there, and there are tons of volumes of it. I, I am actually possibly interested enough to give it a read, just so there I can find go. out some of the backstory that the film. Welcome, didn't welcome to my neck of the woods, Seb. Um. <laughs> So I, I'm just going to quickly run down. There are three volume, three volume. Ugh, well, I mean, they're called volumes, but every every individual volume is broken into smaller chapters as well. So like uh, Battle Angel Alita is, you know, a bunch of books long. Following that, there was a gap. Then there was a, a follow up series called Battle Angel Alita Last Order. And now there is a currently ongoing series called Battle Angel Alita Martian Memory. And they're all set in sort of different time periods and stuff about the life of Alita, who's called Galley in the in the manga. Mm. Although I'm not sure I, how they've anglicized it. I did like when Hugo called her Allie. I thought that was sweet. <laughs> yeah, gave her my one name. pro Hugo point. <laughs> But yeah, um, I am personally intending to catch up on the manga one day, but there's so much of it, it's quite expensive to get into. <laughs> and I read the read the earlier ones already, but I feel like I need to reread them. So, you know, it's quite a, quite a lot of money to spend on that. Yeah, comics, classic comics dilemma. I'd like to get into this thing, but there's three decades of it. So I guess I'll try at some point. 
And also, if you if you like cyborgs and cyberpunk, you probably should read Ghost in the Shower because it's all very similar to this. Extremely similar, I would say. <laughs> no, I, I, I still, as far as this podcast is concerned, I still have an avowed not consuming any version of Ghost in the Shell stance. I have to stick <laughs> to that bit now. <laughs> Anytime you do anything Ghost in the Shell related, I'm I'm not here. <laughs> well, we got you on this. Maybe we'll get you on yeah. get you on more manga one day. Okay, so all that's left then is to do the the new ending, which is we've dispensed with the pitch because it was getting extremely uh, difficult for us to think up fun ideas, and I got sick of losing unofficially. <laughs> so um, we've replaced it with a new section where I come up with a quiz every a different quiz every week. This week I am going to call the quiz Shonen or Nonen because I couldn't come up with a good enough pun. So what I'm going to do. I have here 10 titles, five of which are manga series, five of which are completely invented. I'm going to put them to you guys one at a time. We're going to start with Caroline, because guess mm-hmm, first. Mm-hmm. And you get a point for whether you can name each one as either shonen or nonen. Shonen. Shonen, shonen means it is a manga, because shonen okay. is a, a genre of manga. Nonen is a bad pun it's on the pun. word no. Got it, got it. Love it. Yep. Love a game. <laughs> So, okay, I'm going to start I like how you, you off. say it's a different quiz every time, when actually it's a different name every time, but it's basically <laughs> the same quiz every time. Yeah, yeah. Apart from just a bat minute. I'm just glad I didn't have to do a Bane voice, because I was not as prepared as you guys were to, <laughs> to impersonate Bane. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just trying to think, which one should I start with? Okay. Um, Caroline. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the legend of Mother Sarah is shonen or nonen? I'm going to say nonen. I'm afraid it is shonen. Oh! It's by Katsuhiro Utomo, who wrote Akira. Wow. Uh, it's about a mother searching for her children in a post-apocalyptic dystopian earth. Looks really interesting. I was going to say, that sounds yeah. right on my alley, so this is a good recommendation yeah. corner as well. <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to write down your score there. It'd be zero for me so far. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Okay. Seb, you ready? Yep. The title I'm going to go for for you is My Sister's Wife. Is that shonen or nonen? That really sounds like it would be real, but then that might just be you've cleverly come up with something that sounds like it might be real, which I know is the aim of the game. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for explaining (laughs) the concept behind this. I'm I'm going to say shonen. Shonen, I'm afraid it is Nonen. Actually, the manga that I have ripped off to come up with that title is called uh, My Brother's Husband. But that was what I thought. I thought, I bet you've just changed what the relations (laughs) are, but you've taken the same basic structure. Damn it. (laughs) That's it. Even trying to outwit me, you failed. This is just really making me realize I don't know anything about manga, and now I would like to, because all of these titles sound incredible. (laughs) I mean, the actual manga that I've put in here are all from, uh, there's an extra twist, they're all from the same year that Battle Angel Alita was, uh, came out. There's actually uh, a manga series called uh, Ganmu, spelled G-U-N-N-M, and short for Gun Dreams. But they changed it to Battle Angel Alita because that didn't make any sense. Okay, Caroline. Yes. Your next one. Jungle King Tarchan. Is that Shonen or Nonen? Say it one more time. Jungle King Tarchan. You know, I'm just going to go Shonen. Shonen, it is Shonen. Great. Jungle King Tarzan is a retelling of Tarzan. 
Um, except he lives in the savanna, not in the jungle. <laughs> it's, it's fair to say it's loosely based on Tarzan. Sure. But it's like a it's like a gag strip that sort of breaks out into action sequences for a bit where he has a fight with a wild animal. Absolutely nuts. It's like Tarzan meets the Lion King, it sounds like. It's yeah. on the savanna. Yep. <laughs> okay, Seb, do you think you can get any points out of this one? Yeah, I'm just trying to work out the order in which you're alternating things. <laughs> I also was trying to figure that out as well. <laughs> there is no pattern. I'm just That's a real randomly. strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to I'm going to give you an easy one or what I consider to be an easy one. If you've been paying attention to my Twitter feed over the last 10 years, you'll know this bugger. <laughs> okay. So the title I'm going to give you is School Food Punishment. Is that shonen or nonen? Well, seeing as you just said that it's on your Twitter feed, but then again you might have just changed some of the words. Shonen. I'm afraid it's known. Ah. School Food Punishment are a Japanese shoegaze band who I love. If you had read my Twitter feed religiously, you would know that. Wow, sounds like this friendship was built on lies. (laughs) (laughs) Friendship? We're just colleagues. (laughs) I only followed him because I thought he was a racing driver. (laughs) Okay, Caroline. Yeah. Basketball Princess Misaki. Shonen or Nonen? I just hope it's Shonen because it sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I made that one up. I made that one up. You should read it because I would read it. Not even based. (laughs) Yep. That was my attempt at coming up with a manga series. And I think you're right. I think I should write it. Yeah. Probably shouldn't draw it though. I'm not a very good artist. Okay, Seb, your go. You ready? Yeah. Waltz in a white dress. Shonen or Nonen? Shonen. Shonen. It is shonen. Just... It is a, actually it's seinen, which means it's aimed at uh, young women, not young men. Yeah. It's called it, Waltz in a White Dress. It's a romance manga set in 1930s Asia on the brink of w- the outbreak of World War Two. Wow. Yeah, manga is a very diverse genre. Yeah, that's really There's what I'm getting from on. this. Yeah, Caroline. I'm ready. All-purpose cultural cat girl Nuku Nuku. Mm-hmm. Shonen or nonen? Uh, shonen. It is shonen. Yes. It is about a genius scientist who transplants the brain of a cat into an android schoolgirl body. Oh, so it's my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Seb, there are three more left. You have to get them, or you have to get at least two of them, right? What are the score? What are we at now? The scores are Caroline. You're on two. Seb, you're on one. Right. So, Seb. Okay, Ninja Re-Bang-Bang. Is that Shonen or Nonen? Nonen. Nonen, it is Nonen. It's a Kari Pamu Pamu song. And a good one. <laughs> okay, we're down to sudden death. Oh my god, okay. I'm ready. <laughs> this is this is where it's a draw and then you haven't got any other ones. No, if it's a draw, I've won. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> you both lose. So clever. Okay, Caroline. Yes. Bondage Fairies. Shonen or Nonen? Oh, uh, nonen. I'm afraid it's shonen. I'm slightly upset to think you would that I to to think that you think <laughs> that would have come up with that. Up. It is an extremely graphic adult manga, like of the kind that ruined the reputation of manga in the mm-hmm, West for mm-hmm. a long time. It's about two fairies who have sex with everything. Well, you know, something for everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Okay, Seb. If you get this, oh no, wait. Ooh. <laughs> if you've been paying attention you won't you'll already know the answer to this no i haven't been counting uh, that's good to know yeah 
Okay, Seb, the title I'm giving you is In Her Wilderness Is My Shelter, Shonen or Nonen. I mean, I wish I'd been counting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can you say it again? In In Her Wilderness Is My Shelter. Again, is this something where you could have changed one of the words? Shonen. I'm afraid it's Nonen. Ah. It's a song that I just picked off a J-pop playlist on Spotify. Uh. So wait, are we even and you won? Is that how this ends? Yeah, yeah, you you drew. So either you both won or I won. And I know which interpretation I prefer. And I'm the host. So congratulations to me. Thing is, James, Bad you, luck can't, to you the can't losers. have a tie when there's an American on the podcast. They, they don't understand <laughs> what they are. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you're right. We, we award death. the win to Caroline. We need to go into <laughs> penalty shootouts. Is that a thing? <laughs> Good knowledge. Good British knowledge. Or South America. <laughs> hey, our women's soccer team, we're do they did good, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my lack of sports in general, but <laughs> Trust me, no one here has a lack of sports knowledge more than me. God, now we really need to bring Joe back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean we were quoting Bob Monkhouse lines to each other last week, so I think that ship has sailed. He's not coming back now. I'm going to assume that Caroline has no idea who Bob Monkhouse was. I didn't, but I did enjoy your jokes and I laughed at them. So I guess I'm looking at this. <laughs> he was good. He was, he, was, he was a good comedian turned game show host. And then he was kind of better known as a game show host. But and he he's really, a Br- like he a, a British figure. Yes. I mean, I'm not, I would say I'm more knowledgeable than most about British thing or more not. Than, not than most British people, but than most American people. But he was outside yeah. of my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he was getting like becoming uncool when uh when we were kids. So he was yeah. like our parents' parents' generation, probably. But then he kind of became cool again, kind of after that. Um, and he was famous yeah. for. Uh, look, we're talking about Bob Monkhouse again. This is brilliant. <laughs> I was going to say this is the Bob um, Monkhouse section. He's most podcast. famous for the fact that basically from about the 1970s onwards, he recorded like everything off tv and he also collected lots of film archives so there are a lot of old tv programs and films and stuff that only still exist because bob monkhouse collected them his entire life and there's like this massive archive um that's like a private archive with like thousands and thousands of tapes um that's the monkhouse archive and it's where the only surviving copies of lots of british tv history are are because he was a massive nerd he was great I think this is good. You guys should make random references on the episodes I'm not on, and then I'll make a running list and ask you to explain them to me <laughs> whenever I come back, and this is how I will get my British pop culture education. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, shall we do another Bob Monkhouse one-liner? I'll t- just I'm just to- going to give you another Bob Monkhouse fact, which is that he uh, posthumously appeared in an advert, like a CGI-generated yeah. version uh, of himself. Yeah, that was pretty bad, wasn't appeared it? Appeared in an advert after he died, like something that he had authorised before he died. They did that with Fred Astaire. Obviously, he did not authorise it, but they had him yes. like dancing with the vacuum cleaner or something. Wow. So, I mean, that was uh, Deceased Corner? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to need to come up with a new it feature was, name. It was Pod Monkhouse. Pod Monkhouse, yeah. There My, Michael Leader already gave us the name for that section. Pod Monkhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Right, well, I think we've milked everything we can out of that one. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe on Acast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Play FM, or your podcast app of choice. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Universe. Seb, who's the guy who does that for, like, every month? <laughs> Thank you to Brendan Roberts. Um, thank you and and no new people but new people you can get thanked on the next one if you back us so please do yeah and if you do that you can hear the podcast ad free which apparently uh, acast is sometimes putting adverts in here 
Great. Um, you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicuniverse.com along with all you know the other stuff that we forget to update all the time. I've just published a not short review of season one of The Boys. If anybody wanted my further thoughts on season one of The Boys, they are now on the website. Okay, and I'm going to go and see the new Chris Marks film next week, so I might review that as well if I get, you know, five minutes spare. It looks good. It's called The Day Shall Come. It's basically four lines, but in America. Uh, you can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter at Cine underscore Verse, or you can send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. No one ever does that. Uh, Caroline, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Cita. Great. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.